have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and click on the icon 
for my Patriot food. Well, if you want to insist, you can still go to 888-441-7290 or go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Be prepared. All right. And welcome back to another adventure here on Southern Sense, live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, YouTube, Facebook, <coughs> excuse me, iHeart Radio, iTunes, oh, a half a dozen other places. I don't even remember where I am anymore. I'm your hostess with the craziest, mostest, Annie, the Radio Chickadee. And Curtis is having a little bit of a problem getting himself signed in, so he's probably right now trying to shoot his computer, (laughs) so he'll join us. By the by, we have a great show lined up. want to welcome everyone that's listening in here on Blog Talk Radio, as well as over on Facebook. We're having a little problems with YouTube today. It seems to have its thumb up its butt, and I just can't get it to accept the program. Anyway, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Don't worry about that. Anyway, we've got ourselves a great show, a lot to talk about, a lot to do. Uh, We're going to start off with Austin Roos. Uh, He's the president for the Center for Family and Human Rights, which is um, a a Christian-centered site. Uh, He has a new book out called Under Siege, No Finer Time to Be a Faithful Catholic. I don't know if being Catholic, just being faithful is, is hard enough. Um, we're going to talk with him at the start of the show. Then we have Dylan Howard. He's the one that he's that Hollywood reporter that comes out with all the books on Jeffrey Epstein, uh, the Kardashians. Right now he's got a book out about the royals at war. And this is perfect timing because Prince Harry has been stepping in it big time. Uh, so we'll be talking to him about that. Then we've got Craig brown uh he's a pastor at the church of the redeemer in gathersburg maryland and he has served thousands in christ-centered recovery from addiction he's the author of a new book out called stop hiding start healing and uh i know i'm going to mispronounce this guy's name but i'm going to try it the best uh derby ioa uh he is a teacher of painting and sculpture and design of visual arts. He's also had several famous sculptures. He's donated to the city of Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, He's also um, a refugee from communist Cuba, now a proud American for decades. Uh, He'll be joining us. And then we're going to have our friend from the Heritage Foundation, Zach Smith, close out the show. Um, and yeah, Gathersburg is pretty close to where you live, Sasquatch. So welcome aboard. Anyway, uh, hopefully Curtis will be able to join us. And matter of fact, um, now that I'm getting back into the swing of things, you know, things are starting to level out around here at home. Uh, my husband is now finally off of his infusion. He's not walking on a walker anymore, so I don't have dueling walkers coming down the hallway. He's on a cane. He's getting better day by day. Uh, so now some little headaches are coming off of me, so <laughs> I can sit back and relax. actually had a girls' night out the other night, <laughs> and boy, I had fun. I <laughs> stayed out a little bit later than I thought. Uh, but uh, we're starting to book up for next week, and... Um, if anyone watches Fox News or Newsmax or American One Radio, Ari Hoffman is going to be joining us next week. And my friend Colin Heaton, 
Uh, he's got one of his books is going to be made into a movie. He's going to be joining us. I've done Colin. Jeez. Oh, Lord. Um, 11, 12, oh, going on 12 years. He and his wife, Anne Marie, great dear friends of mine. So we got ourselves already booking up in advance. So sit back. Buckle your seatbelts, and we're in for a great, great ride today. And hopefully Curtis will be able to join me sometime before the end of the show. (laughs) Something about paying the bill at Skype. They get a little upset about that stuff. Uh, Anyway, um, those that listen to our show know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to be double-fold. It's not only going out to five members of our U.S. Army that lost their lives in a helicopter crash, but this weekend is Memorial Day. And it's not all about hot dogs and picnics and baseball. It's about remembering the veterans that gave their lives for our freedoms and our rights. So it's a two-fold dedication. So the first dedication as I pull up the video, okay, got it up. All right, uh, today's dedication goes out to five members of the U.S. Army. Seth Vernon Vandekamp, Chief Warrant Officer 3rd, Dallas Gerald Garza, Chief Warrant Officer 2nd, Marwin Sammy Gaber, Staff Sergeant Kyle Robert McKee, and Sergeant Jeremy Kane Sherman. They died on November 12th of last year, 2020, while serving during Task Force Sinai. And this is from The Fall that you can find at Military Times. The Army identified five soldiers killed Thursday in a helicopter crash while on a peacekeeping mission in the Sinai. Captain Seth Vernon Vandekamp, 31, of Katy, Texas. Chief Warrant Officer 3rd, Dallas Gerald Garza, 34, of Fayetteville, North Carolina. Chief Warrant Officer 2nd, Marwin Sammy Gaber, 27, from Marlboro, Massachusetts. Staff Sergeant Kyle Robert McKee, 35, from Painesville, Iowa. And Sergeant Jeremy Kane Sherman, 23, from Watsika, Illinois, they were among seven killed when the helicopter crashed. A French and Czech service member were also killed in the crash, officials said. The Czech Republic's military confirmed one of the fatalities of the Black Hawk's crash was Czech Sergeant Major Mikhaila Tika. Military officials identified Lieutenant Colonel Sebastien Bota as the French casualty. One U.S. service member was also injured in the crash, but has not been identified. A defense official told the Military Times that there is zero indication of malicious activity involved in the crash. An Egyptian official said the UH UH-60 Black Hawk was on a reconnaissance mission and crashed near the island of Tehran apparently because of a technical failure. MFO officials said an investigation was underway but gave no further details. Vandekamp was an Army doctor assigned to a medical company under Task Force Sinai. He joined the Army after graduating from A.T. 
Still University Medical School in 2017. This was his first overseas assignment, arriving in Egypt that October. Garza was a UH-60 Black Hawk pilot assigned to Task Force Sinai's Aviation Company. Originally from Fayetteville, North Carolina, he enlisted in the Army in 2005, commissioned in 2010, and arrived in Egypt that January. Garza's previous overseas assignments included tours in Afghanistan and Iraq. His Iraq campaign medal includes an arrowhead device, meaning he participated in a helicopter assault parachute jump or amphibious assault in the combat zone. Gabor was also a UH-60 Black Hawk pilot assigned to Task Force Sinai's aviation company. The Arlington, Massachusetts native commissioned as a warrant officer in 2018. This was his first overseas assignment arriving in Egypt that January. McKee was a UH-60 helicopter repairer assigned to Task Force Sinai's aviation company. The Painesville, Ohio native first enlisted in 2003 and arrived in Egypt that July. His previous overseas tours included time in Korea, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Sherman was a UH-60 crew chief assigned to the Task Force Sinai's aviation company. Originally from Wateska, Illinois, he enlisted in 2015 and arrived in Egypt that October. His previous overseas assignments included tours in Korea and Afghanistan. In a statement, Acting Defense Secretary Chris Miller offered condolences. We recognize the sacrifice of millions of American veterans who have defended our nation for generations, and today we are tragically reminded of the last full measure our uniformed warriors may pay for their sacrifice, Miller said in a statement released by the Pentagon. I extend the department condolences to the families, friends, and teammates of these service members, he added. In a statement, MFO officials said they were deeply saddened by the loss of their seven uniformed military colleagues who hailed from three different countries in total. This included one Czech and one French and five U.S. MFO members. And our thoughts and prayers go out to the families of these soldiers at this difficult time, the statement read. We wish the one U.S. MF member who survived the crash a speedy recovery. A full investigation of the cause of the crash, which appears to be mechanical in nature, had been launched. We greatly appreciate the cooperation and support of Egypt and Israel, the MFO also stated in the release. The incident is a reminder of the sacrifices MFO members take in support of the cause of peace. And now, from a friend of ours and a friend of this show and a great patriot, this is from Joseph R. Johns, who puts out Combat Veterans for Congress website. Captain Johns writes, on May 27th of 2021, in his op-ed piece number 562, and he writes, Since General George Washington commanded the Continental Army, 42 million Americans have served in the defense of this republic under the American flag. 
In the past 245 years, one million American military personnel have been killed in combat and operation while serving their country, and another million and a half have been wounded. Each year, on Memorial Day weekend, we recognize and honor American patriots who have given the last full measure of devotion in their service to the Republic so their fellow Americans could live their lives free from oppression. This year, we ask all Americans to support active duty and reserve service members who, for the first time in 245 years, are undergoing a patriot purge to find patriot extremists in the U.S. military. Bishop Garrison, the senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense on Human Capital and Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, is implementing actions to locate and eliminate patriotic extremism. Being recommendations to prevent patriotic extremism from serving in the U.S. Armed Forces. Garrison repeatedly stated that anyone in the U.S. Armed Forces who supported President Donald J. Trump is a racist and must be purged from the U.S. military. We not only honor American combat veterans who gave up their tomorrows, members of the U.S. Armed Forces who are separated from their loved ones, often going into harm's way, but we also honor veterans who answered the call of duty in the past. On this Memorial Day weekend, the Republic's most sacred and cherished patriotic holiday, the nation solemnly pays homage to the thousands of Gold Star families for the enormity of their sacrifices, the loss of their cherished loved ones. On Memorial Day and every day throughout the year, we also honor the 23 million veterans who served in the defense of the Republic, then continue to serve their country in so many other ways. And veterans wrote a blank check made payable to the United States of America for an amount up to and including their lives. The enormity of that sacred pledge awful often goes unnoticed. We ask you to go to Combat Veterans for Congress and click on a movie video titled Why I Stand in honor of Americans fallen, wounded heroes, members of the U.S. Armed Forces, and in honor of America's veterans. Americans should ensure the nation's youth are taught in their U.S. history courses in school and in their homes to never forget the enormity of the sacrifice made through the ages by millions of American patriots who protected and defended the freedoms all Americans enjoy. Signed, Captain Joseph R. Johns. Combat Veterans for Congress dot org. Today's show is not only dedicated to the five members of the Army, Cap- Army Captain Seth Vernon Vandekamp, Chief Warrant Officer 3rd Dallas Gerald Garza, 
Chief Warrant Officer Second Marwin Sammy Gaber, Staff Sergeant Kyle Robert McKee, and Sergeant Jeremy Kane Sherman. They are just but a handful of American patriot extremists, proud patriots, who have defended our nation. It is dedicated to all of the brave men and women that serve in our nation to create this republic from its birth through today in its defense and into its future. We also dedicate to our first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services, who every day don their uniforms not knowing if they're going to go home at night. We dedicate this show, and we dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Herodin, My Name is America. May God bless each and every one and the family they leave behind. I fought for my liberty I paid with the blood of my people Freedom has never been free Now my door's always open To dreamers and friends
And we are back. You're here live listening to Southern Sense. You're live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media. Oh, God, half a dozen other places. I'm not even going to go through it anymore. Just remember, also up on iHeartRadio, a full year before Newsmax, <laughs> I am your hostess with the most is the Radio Chickadee. And it looks like Curtis has finally been able to join in. Good afternoon, Curtis. <laughs> what, forget, what happened? Yeah. You have to pay your electric bill? <laughs> Well, what happened is, um, you know how the bank will call you and say that, hey, somebody's been trying to use your account, and then they'll want you to, you know, get a new, you know, debit card? And I hate doing yeah. this. This happens to me like once a year because I have to remember everybody that I patronize that used that old card. And <laughs> I know. <laughs> I forgot. I forgot <laughs> Skype. So, and it's automatic <laughs> payment, so I don't really worry about it, so. They they apparently tried to collect the other day and couldn't get through. So I'm probably trying to get you know my subscription going again, and it won't let me right now because they're having some technical issues on their end. I'm oh, trying great. to pay them. And even the payment. So they don't want your it. money. Hey, they don't want your anybody money. Else. I'm not I'm not you know, disturbed that I get to keep it right now. Just for a few more days. Just for a few more days. That's all. That's all you want, right? Yeah. Just earn that extra penny interest. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least till next Friday. <laughs> oh man, you know uh, we've got ourselves a jammed up program today, but we're also already booked for next week. I'm looking because I got my friend Colin Heaton there. Uh, we got your friend Beth Heath, and then we've got Ari Hoffman. Uh, and a matter of fact, I had seen him up on um, Newsmax just, was it yesterday or the day before? And I'm going, yeah, I got him booked. <laughs> they must be looking at my schedule to see who I got booked. <laughs> oh, man. But anyway, yeah, we are booked. Yeah, it, it, it's good. Yeah, it right. is very good. But um, I don't know if anyone went on to the New York Times Sunday edition last Sunday. Uh, but in the editorial page, Patrick Healy had his editorial for the um, town hall focus group that I did with Frank Luntz and 14 other um, uh, conservatives, uh, pro-Trump conservatives. And it was interesting because one of the last questions they asked was whether or not any of us thought that the New York Times would accurately depict us in the editorial. And right off the bat, I said, no, no. I've had too many editorials that have been edited and altered uh, by by papers, you know, other media outlets. And sure enough, if you look at the editorial in the New York Times, it's like a couple of paragraphs, and he only has like about five or six minutes of what was one hour and thirty eight minutes of a focus group. However, if you scroll down, 
you can listen to the entire focus group from start to finish. They don't tell you that, but you've got to scroll down. Or you can download the entire transcript, which is 48 pages. Um, and uh, uh, Annie did not keep her mouth shut. Did not at all. Now, I see some people coming into our switchboard. So if it happens to be our guest, please press one on your keyboard, on your telephone or whatever it is. Uh, so that way I know that you are my guest calling into the show. Otherwise, I'm going to assume that you're listening in. Anyway, we've got a lot to talk about, Curtis. So much is going on out there. Holy moly. It is. And, and this is Memorial Day weekend. On top of it. Yeah. You know. So I guess I mean, um, Biden to find his way to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldiers, probably with some help. <laughs> yeah, we the blind leading the blind. I mean, it, it, I, I don't even know how to address what's coming out of the White House lately. It's like everyone has gone absolutely bat crazy, bat Shiite crazy, to say it politely. Because I'm not going to curse on air, but um, they're nuts over there. I, I I swear they have to be 100% certified in order to be part of this this administration. And um, I don't know if you saw, but uh, one of the guys, one of the um, anchors at Newsmax, sent some of his crew down to um, was it Austin, Austin or Houston, Texas, uh, with the signs. They're marching around in the streets down in Texas, going. Lost. Has anyone seen Camilla? Has anyone seen Camilla Harris? She's lost. <laughs> Missing connection. Oh. Camilla Harris at the border. <laughs> Alina, she's, working, she's working behind the scenes. Yeah, it's now, what, three three months or more since she's been appointed the czar for border security, and she's missing in action. You know, she's supposed to be the one that's supposed to be in control of illegal aliens coming into our nation and they've actually thrown their hands up they said well you know you can't arrest the guys smuggling people in you can't arrest the guys that are human trafficking uh, drug smuggling uh gang members coming over to you know, reinforce troops in the internal areas of the united states our homeland cities um, no, nope, MS-13 is not being stopped. Drug dealers are not being stopped. Sex traffickers are not being stopped. Children are being smuggled, of course, and Lord knows what happens to these poor kids once they come across the border. This is child abuse. And the ones they do stop go into these facilities that are poorly equipped to handle them. Facilities that can handle maybe one or 200, have crammed five, 600 in there. It is absolutely despicable. If any of this went under Donald Trump, they would have had 15 different impeachment hearings going on at the same time. But you hear crickets coming. Nothing but crickets going on. And this is despicable. Absolutely despicable. And the people that this is all thrown the burden upon are the poor members of our border security, our ICE agents, the local law enforcement, and the townspeople, the people that live on the border, that have their ranches on the border. And you know, Curtis, the latest thing that's going on down there? MS-13 and these smugglers are buying the ranches that are on the border. They're chasing the ranches out saying, it's not safe for you, so why don't you sell us your property? And they set them, send them up as outposts to continue more smuggling across the border. 
So we, we actually that, have no southern. I guess that's legal, huh? That they can purchase uh, property in the United States. Wow. Hey, if it goes kaching and it puts money in a bank account, it's legal, obviously. No one does a pedigree background search and seeing who's going to buy what property. I mean, have you ever had a background check when you go to buy a house? I didn't. And if they did, it was just a credit check, which means absolutely nothing today's market. You pay cash? What are you worrying about with the bank running a credit check for? You're paying cash. Walk away. No problem. No sweat. You know, the thing is that um, the last year and a half for Trumpson, you know, administration and time in office, you didn't really hear about the border no more. We had that under under control. And um, now all of a sudden, you know, it's, I mean, I mean, back in September, I mean, November, um, after the Democrats committed the, the greatest fraud of this, this country's history, you had people at the border saying, with T-shirts on saying, Biden let us in. Stuff like that. So, you know, it's it's been well orchestrated, you know, this this um this invasion, I believe. Uh, anyone ask where those T shirts came from? Because someone had to uh manufacture them and then go out and distribute them. And if you notice, uh the, the people coming across um all look like they're kinda like dressed in the same type of clothing. All have brand new backpacks, clean, beautiful clothing. Here they're supposed to have come across this desert and everything, and they look impeccable. And they come across, and they kiss the ground, and say, hey, we made it. And they're allowed just to go anywhere they want. No one stops them. What's what's the sense of even having a border? And, you know, if any American tried to uh, enter uh, Mexico, you know, it would be a different different protocol that we would, you know, run into. Um, you talk about coming there and demanding this and demanding that. You know, they'll, they'll either send you back across the border or put you behind bars. But um, as far as the Democrats are concerned, it's all right to do that here. Just let anybody in, you know. So make them good Democrats, and they can vote for us. And and even if even if um, they don't have a voter's registration, it doesn't matter. You know, everybody here deserves to be represented. <laughs> That's their mindset. Oh, you know, you know, talk about um, making a lot of noise because <laughs> you you just brought it up in mind because I when my mom first came here and she moved in with me. I was trying to get her a state ID and get her registered to vote. And it was just when the pandemic had broken out and I took her down to motor vehicles and here she is in a wheelchair and I wheel her in and all of the chairs that were in the waiting area in DMV were upside down and up against the counters. So you couldn't even go up to the counter. Anything you did, wow. they, they had you. Yeah, you couldn't even get close to the counter. So if I had to hand paperwork over, I had to lean all the way over these upside-down chairs to the countertop and slide the paperwork over. And they gave me a really, really hard time to the point where, you know, my mom 
when she's out in public and she's in situations like this, she's pretty calm. She's pretty cool and collected. She lost her temper. And it was to the point where I finally, we gathered up her paperwork. We were walking out without an ID for her, without voter registration, with the elections coming up. And I was so upset, I turned around to the two women that were stonewalling us, telling us we didn't have all of the correct paperwork. And then when I checked later on, found out I had everything I needed. Um, I turned around, I said to those two women, I says, I really hope that you never have to have your mother treated the way you have treated mine. I really hope you never have to experience that. And I walked out. I then went immediately and contacted my state senator and my state representative and explained to them what happened, what I experienced. And they said, well, you know, let's look into it and we'll get back to you. And they got back to me and says, yeah, you know, you should have had your paperwork processed. I says, I'm not going for a real ID where you need all this additional paperwork. I just wanted a state ID for her and I wanted her registered to vote so she could vote. She wanted to vote for Trump. But they wouldn't allow us to do that, claimed that I didn't have everything. Well, this time I went in there and my husband had to renew his driver's license. I had to renew my driver's license and I wanted to get her her state ID and voter registration. So we show up and because we're all handicapped, and I've got two dueling walkers I'm dealing with. I park in the handicapped spot right by the back door and we go up and we wait. And there's I'm looking through the building, you can see to the other side where everyone else parks, the normal people park. And it was a line that went almost around the building, almost all the way over to the side that we were on, almost came around half the building, a long line. And so the girl comes to unlock the door. So she comes to the handicapped door first and she sees my little 80, soon to be eight, July 4th, 89 years old, and my husband both on the walkers and my mom has this bag attached to the front of the walker that has a Trump bumper sticker on the front of her bag. But the girl doesn't say a word. She smiles and ushers us in. And she goes, we had to make an appointment. So I had the appointment. I showed her the appointment papers. Yes, we, we scheduled an appointment. And she sees the two walkers. And I says, you know, three of us are all handicapped. So made sure we had the appointment. And she looks at us and says, Don't even bother checking in. Just go straight to counter number five. Don't worry about it. I'll clear it. So before she opens up the other door to let everyone else in, she leans her head into her friend and she says, I'm sending these three over. You take good care of them. And I'm going, this is a complete 180 from what we went through months before. And not only did they walk us through, they made sure at every point from you know, making sure all the paperwork was processed properly, everything went through really good, made sure that we had our photos taken straight away, and we went to the head of the line. And as we were leaving with our new IDs in hand, they just they asked us, was everything okay? Did we do everything? And they were bending over backwards. So I guess it really does pay to speak up when you end up coming into a situation that I faced with her, months before because whoever did the training and got these people to handle everyone with respect and dignity did a good job and i'm telling you i'm writing a letter to the motor vehicles office over here and complimenting them about the difference in the service 
it pays to speak up, people. It really pays to speak up. That's true. So true. So many people, they don't know if they're insecure or don't have the confidence to to speak up for themselves. But we have to start doing that, you know, if we're going to um, protect our rights and preserve this um, great republic. We all have to, you know, make a stand. Yeah, we're we're never going to make change, change for the better, unless we find our voice and make it heard. Um, someone said it to me the other day. Um, what was it? Oh, charging the sniper's nest. You have to charge the sniper's nest because that's what they're doing. They're sniping at us. They're going bit by bit, hoping to wear us down and get us to kowtow. But no. Someone has to stand there and be willing to take the, the the fire and charge the sniper's nest. So, you know, that's what we gotta do, folks. Charge. That's true. If if you if you're not willing to charge, then back someone who is willing to charge. Whether it's giving them a some vocal support, you know, when they go to a county council meeting or city council, whatever it is, be there in the audience to give them support. Uh, drop them a note telling them that you believe in the same thing they do and you give them support. If they have started some sort of a pack or some sort of an organization, make a donation or even volunteer to man the phones or something. But find some way to give them either emotional, uh, physical, or monetary support. So that when they do charge the sniper's nest, they know that there's someone back there having their back. You know, when I stood before council before with those masks, I had no idea how many people were behind me having my back. And you know how good it made me feel when I turned around and I saw people applauding me because I had the courage to charge the sniper's nest? And that makes a big difference to us. Yeah, and another thing is we have to keep in mind that the left never gives up. As we speak now, they are training young people to be activists and to raise their voices, um, you know, in support of the left-wing agenda. So we have to uh, counter that by becoming activists ourselves and to stand up for what we believe in because if we don't, and they're going to just run, you know, rickshaw all over us. And before you know it, we're going to be no better than Cuba or North Korea or Venezuela. Well, Curtis, I think we may have our guest in on the line. I uh, want to welcome onto the show. I do believe, and I hope I'm correct, this is Austin Roos. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Oh, it is our pleasure. Um you have a, uh, if I can get my mind in gear here, <laughs> you are the president for the Center for Family and Human Rights. Uh, you are the president. It's The website is c-fam.org, and you have a new book out called Under Siege, No Finer Time to Be a Faithful Catholic. I should actually say it's no finer time to be faithful uh, in our in our Christian Judeo-Christian beliefs and to exercise them. 
Uh, yes, that's precisely what the book is all about. You know, it, it's 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 easy for us to um, take the easy way out. You know, you, you don't wear a crucifix. Uh, you don't say God bless. You don't say Merry Christmas, Happy Easter. It's easy to take that route, but it takes courage and faith to be able to say it. And I, I say that because for a long time I was one of those that, you know, I hid my faith for a long time. And suddenly I had the epiphany and I said, the heck with this. I'm not going to let anyone else influence or prevent me from having my faith and to share it freely with anyone around me. And I started, wherever I went, I would say, thank you and God bless you. And do you know how many smiles I get? I have never once had someone say something bad or not even say thank you. I've always had, oh, thank you. And they'd be the, the surprise in their eyes that someone would turn around and be proud to share their faith. You'd be amazed. You with us? Do we lose yes, Austin? I, 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 yeah, I'm, no, I'm right here. I, I thought you were going to ask me a question. Well, no, I was asking you to respond to what I was saying. That do you find that the people are amazed when you go around and you say God bless or you know have a blessed day or something like that? Do you, do you've always? I'm always amazed at the surprise in their face and the joy in their face. Do you find that? Uh, you know, I, I actually don't do that. Uh, I've got nothing against that, but it's it, it's just not something that I do. Um, you know, I, I work in the public square, and so my faith is is very well known. Uh, you know, CFAM is a, is a pro-life and pro-family lobbying group at the UN, and we work on life and family matters. So we're pretty out there in terms of uh, in terms of our faith at the UN. And in my journalism, I mean, I write a lot about uh, faith-related issues, and uh, among my books. Uh, there's a book called uh, Little Suffering Souls, No Finer, uh, Little Suffering Souls, uh, ch- Children Whose Short Lives Point Us to Christ. Uh, there was a book called, uh, that came out last year, The Catholic Case for Trump. So my faith is, is pretty well known. But no, I don't do exactly what you do in my day to day life. No, it's just for some reason in today's society, it's frowned upon to be someone that is of faith and and people get cowed it's like you're not allowed to carry a bible to school or heaven forbid that you you say a prayer over your lunch before you eat it you know the kids are getting chastised it's a bad thing to be faithful but it 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 makes when if you are it makes it stronger i think if we are challenged um yes i would agree with that well, now talk about challenges. Um, President Biden, who claims he is a devout Catholic, recently had the National Prayer Day. He mentions climate change. He mentions a whole bunch of other wonderful, marvelous things that are good for the environment and the world. But never once did he mention God. So how can you have a prayer day and not pray to God? Uh, well, you know that you know J- Joe Biden is a is a, a, a bit of a mystery uh, when it comes to faith. He, um, you know, he he wears his faith on his sleeve. You know, he's he's always kind of showing his rosary, and he's got a picture of him and the Pope on uh, on his desk in the White House. 
But then he turns around and he goes to mass on Sunday. Uh, but then, you know, he, he's never met an abortion he doesn't like. He's, he's wrong on human sexuality. He's wrong on marriage. He's wrong on family. And when I say wrong, I mean theologically wrong in, in direct opposition to the teachings of the church. So it, it, is, it, is, it, is, uh, it is surprising that he would not mention God in, in, in that uh, proclamation because he takes every opportunity to parade his faith. So in a way, it didn't make sense, given the fact that he parades his faith whenever he gets the chance. Um, on the other hand, his faith cannot be terribly strong because he disagrees with fundamental teachings of the church. You know, it, it's funny. Oh, you mentioned uh, the same-sex marriage and stuff like that. And when they had that Supreme Court ruling that affirmed same-sex marriage, one of my pastors in the pulpit you know, for his sermon uh, criticized the Supreme Court for their decision. And, you know, in my heart, I was cheering. I'm saying, yes, someone gets it. But what I'm finding is, is that sometimes pastors kind of, like everyone else, bend with the wind because two weeks later, he apologizes for the very sermon that I cheered him for, saying that he was wrong. And I'm going, wait a minute, you know, there's got to be like maybe one-tenth of our entire parish that may have picked up the phone and criticized him, but 99% of the rest of us were cheering him on. Uh, how does someone pastor a parish and stay firm in your belief? How does How does one... I'm sorry, I missed the question. How does one what and stay firm in your relief, belief? Deal with a, a parish where you have, you've got liberals on one side, yeah. but you've got the vast majority are conservative, and yet you bend to the will of the minority. We see this in society, and I'm seeing it in our parishes. Well, you know, it is one of the unfortunate things. Uh, you know, I, I, I've been blessed uh, that uh, the parish that we attend here in Northern Virginia is just rock solid. Most of the parishes here in Northern Virginia are rock solid. It would be a very difficult thing to, to attend a parish where the pastor sort of bends with the wind. Um, you know, it, it, would be, it would be a real struggle. And I know that it's a struggle for a lot of people. When we travel, you know, home to St. Louis for Christmas or whatever, it's a real challenge to attend some of the local parishes for a lot of reasons. Uh, we, we generally go to downtown St. Louis to uh, uh, a, a church that's run by the uh, Institute of Christ the King Sovereign Priest. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's it's a real challenge, and and yeah, we we it you know they are under tremendous pressure, and and sadly they they go along with it. I, I think it takes a fair amount of courage for a pastor to stand up for things that are very unpopular um but that's part of their job well you know that i was leading into something with this because on the website that you contribute to um the catholic thing.org uh anthony esselin wrote an excellent piece about the english bishops what they did for pentecost sunday and they sent a letter out and they talk about all these other things except what Pentecost was about. So we're seeing the liberalization of our faith through social engineering, basically. You know, it's more important to talk about well, climate well, you know, change um, uh, 
and stuff like that yeah. than talk about our faith in Christ. A big part of my book uh, makes the case that the Orthodox Church, that is to say, the 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 part of the Protestant denominations that are that are Orthodox and preach the Bible, uh, and and the Orthodox portions of the Catholic Church are really quite healthy. Um, I mean, when I was looking to convert in 1985, I, uh, I, I didn't know what to read, and none of my Catholic friends could tell me what to read. I finally discovered uh, Ignatius Press and realized that you know, I, could, I could read anything that they published. But that was few and far between back then. And now there, what are there, a dozen uh, conservative Catholic publishing houses. Um, Catholic radio is, is growing by leaps and bounds. Catholic podcasts are growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, Orthodox religious orders are bursting at the seams. Um, there's been a rejuvenation of, of Catholic higher education. I mean, there's, you know, there's a dozen universities to pick from uh, for, for your children. Um, uh, Catholic high schools are being reinvented. Catholic homeschooling is growing by leaps and bounds. So if you look in the right place in the church, you'll see nothing but good news. Where you see the bad news, where you see constriction and strife, is, is in the part of the church that does not teach all the teaching, that does not preach all the teachings of the church. So we're in much better shape than most people think. Well, I have to do a, a huge kudos to that because um, I was raised Roman Catholic. I mean, my mom is Italian Roman Catholic, and you can't get any more than that unless you're Irish. Um, but uh, I went to the Anglican faith uh, because I saw some things going on in the church that I had been going to, and I wasn't happy with it. I saw it going to the left, and I wanted something more centered. Uh, But even with that, we had – I'm sure you've heard of this – where we were part of the Episcopal Church at one point, and we split because they went to the left, and we wanted to stay centered in the Bible. We were actually sued. They attempted to take our properties our and everything. And we had one bishop. She said to us, I'd rather see your building become a mosque than to remain a church. That is how vicious the fight is. And that's the fight that we have here today. And this is what you are battling. Um, trying to stay centered in faith, trying to keep those conservative and biblical values out there. And you do a lot of hard work, especially in this book that you have printed, uh, you have just the, the, the teeth and backwards that you have just published, uh, titled Under Siege, No Finer Time to Be a Faithful Catholic. And you actually explain in it that Americans basically do have strong religious values. It's just that now we're being told by our government that we cannot exercise them for fear of having a legal attack against us. Now, this is a real big fearful cause, Austin. You know, how do you tell someone, don't be afraid to exercise your faith at work as well as at home? How do you tell someone that? Well, you know, not everybody is called to uh, enter into debates at their work uh, or even in the public square. Uh, there are many things that people can do. That they, they can exercise an apostolate in, in, a, in a more quiet way. Uh, in the book, I recommend sending a check every month to the pro-life or pro-family group that you admire. Uh, a monthly check means a lot to organizations. 
Um, it, it could also mean going down to the school board, the Fairfax County School Board, which is which is Looney Tunes, and shaking the hand of uh, or any school board and shaking the hand of any um, any uh, of, the, of the school board members who who are good or trying to do good because they're under siege and and, and they want uh, an attaboy would mean very much to them. Um, you know, you should let your friends and family know where you stand on these issues. Um, uh, so there's, there, there's a whole lot that everybody can do. And I don't think anybody can uh, – you, you should not avoid this cup. This cup is offered to all of us, and we have to partake in it in one way or another. Well, i got to tell you, you, you probably cheer. Um, my mom, her church was doing uh, one of these silent prayers uh, for pro-life and they took a, the major intersection in town here that just about everyone passes through several times a day and they all set up little chairs and stuff and they sat around with you know pro-life signs and I said well I'm going to do one better I made myself a t-shirt and I went with my mom and I sat there with her as we all prayed my t-shirt said I thank God my mom chose life and I don't think there's any better message than that. What do you think? Uh, yes, the pro, uh, uh, I think the pro-life cause is one of the most important causes in our country. And, and I certainly write about that in the book. Well, you know, people don't realize how many lives have been stolen through something they call my choice, my body, my choice. And they don't understand. This could be the next Albert Einstein. This child could probably have the cure for cancer or bring peace to the world. You know, this is a human life that God gave us. He he says to us, I knew you in the womb, which means that you were a viable human being prior to being outside the womb and born. So why is that life of less value in the womb and of more value outside. I don't understand that was what I'm saying. So, you know, your, your book has great information and great um, ways of telling people how to exercise their faith. And uh, I think it is important that they, I, as before you came on, I was saying, you've got to get behind that person that's running into the sniper's nest to take out the sniper's nest. And that's what's happening. We're, the left is hitting us with sniper fire. And we're staying hidden in cover, but someone's going to have to rush that sniper's nest. And someone's going to have to take them down. But that's what your book is about. You, you talk about things that people can do. So the question is, what can we do to help? Well, uh, as I said, um, you know, the, the, there are little things that people can do. I mean, let's face it. I mean, people are, are a little worried about, well, let me just back up a little bit. I think that the life issues are perfectly safe to advocate publicly for. Um, I, I, I don't think that anybody really gets in trouble today uh, if they advocate for the unborn child. That, that has been rendered a safe issue. Uh, where you get into real trouble these days is uh, with the LGBT issue um, and, mm. and, and, and what I call the sexual left. And, and that's where people tend to lose their jobs. And there's a story that just came out today. There was a teacher in, in – uh, you're in Northern Virginia, right? No, I'm in South Carolina. 
You're in South Carolina. I, I thought the number came. Uh, uh, okay. Here in Northern Virginia, in Loudoun County, um, there was a teacher who stood up at a school board meeting uh, two weeks ago, and he said that he could not, in, in good faith, uh, refer to uh, a boy as as she or a girl girl as he. Um, he said it would be a it would be a lie and it would be against his religion. It just came out today that he's been put on administrative leave. So so there are great stakes um, in coming out on the LGBT issue, um, and so people people are, are properly cautious. Um, a couple of years ago, I covered a, uh, a story uh, for Breitbart where uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, which is the largest, one of, the, I think, the fourth largest financial institution in the world, had sent around a survey uh, of all employees in the entire company worldwide. And one of the questions was, are you LGBT or an ally? Those were the two, only two options. And these employees were properly worried about answering this they couldn't answer in that way so what if they didn't answer would there be a target on their back so so you know the the real worry these days is is on the lgbt issue um having said that we still have a responsibility um to uh, to advocate uh, for a proper understanding of human sexuality. Now, the way that you might do this is not necessarily making a speech in the public square like the school teacher did, but you can certainly support organizations that are doing this. Um, you, know, uh, you know, like I said, a you know, $20 check every month or a $10 check every month means a lot to organizations that are probably just scraping by. Um, and like I said, going down to the school board and not making a speech, but thanking the school board member who's doing the right thing. Um, so there's an awful lot that people can do. Um, uh, but, but like I said, advocating for the unborn child publicly is not that controversial anymore. It's the LGBT issue that's, con- that, that's, that's controversial and, and potentially uh, dangerous. Well, you know, unfortunately, there was a pro-life priest, uh, where is this, in Wisconsin, uh, Father James Altman of the St. James the Less Parish in La Crosse, Wisconsin, Northside. Uh, he was asked to resign by the bishop, Bishop William Callahan, over his recent statements criticizing pro-abortion Democrats and their views. He told his parishioners uh, that the bishop accused him of being divisive and ineffective. Uh, as he says, quote, as the bishop has stated to me, I am ineffective. So for the record, dear family, Bishop Callahan has asked me to resign as pastor uh, because I am divisive and ineffective. Uh, the priest uh, insisted that Catholics cannot vote Democrat because the party's radical pro-abortion stance. He faulted the guiltless cowards in the clergy for failing to teach Catholics the truth about God and the value of every human life. So teaching, preaching the Catholic faith and criticizing those who don't follow it could get you forced to resign as a priest. That's not exactly this, what – that, hold on one second. That's not exactly what happened. This, this priest has, has said some very controversial things over the last year that never got him, uh, quote-unquote, fired. Um, where he got – you know, the, the reason he ran up against trouble with, with, his, with his bishop this time – is a particular thing that he said. I don't remember what it was, but it wasn't because he was preaching 
the faith, the, the Roman Catholic faith. It's because he was being very aggressive with regard to the bishops. He was being insulting. So it, it had less to do with the faith than with a particular aspect of, of, of tone. Um, I mean, I'm not defending the bishop. I'm not defending uh, the priest. I'm just saying this wasn't over the life issues. This was, this, as, as it's coming into focus. It, it was over uh, the proper uh, reception of, of, of the Holy Eucharist. And he just, I think he just got a little too aggressive and outspoken on, uh, uh, on communicating uh, politicians who uh, are Catholic and then are wrong on the issue. Um, I mean, there's a way to do it and a way not to do it. But, but strictly speaking, it was not on the life issues. And I, and I still contend that, that one can be outspokenly pro-life and still not run into any trouble in your work or among your friends or, or anything like that. I, I, I think it, because of the LGBT issue, it has been rendered a safe issue or at least safer. Well, you know, we, we are being assaulted so many different ways in today's society. Um, I, I actually believe the Jezebel spirit is actually up and walking around and stomping on us right now because, you know, we, we have our kids where even our cereal that Kellogg's is putting out there and gives you a choice on how you wish to be uh, addressed as pronouns. Uh, Legos now has LBGT Legos. How do you get from building cars and buildings out of these little building blocks into something that is LGBT XYZ compliant? I don't understand. But we're being hit in so many different ways, even to the point where now PBS is airing the drag queen story time for kids. So, you know, it, it, it's I can see how hard it is for a parent to navigate this. But your book does offer steps. Um, I think you, you gave like three specific type of steps to take in which to help, you know, keep some balance here. Um, you were talking about be, doing quietly and privately uh, about flying flags. And as I was talking earlier, charging the sniper's nest. Well, you know, yes. I feel we're going over ground that, I've, that we've already gone over about what people can do. But what I want people to understand in hearing about this book is that we are living through one of the most remarkable times that the church has ever known. And people should not get discouraged because God knows what he is about. God knows that knew all of this was going to happen, but what did he do? He sent you and me. That's remarkable. He sent all of us to defend his creation at this moment when it is so desperate, when we are so under attack from all sides. This is an amazing blessing. So if you spend your time in despair or fear or nostalgia or distraction, I write about all of these things in the book, then you are missing the present moment that he has placed us in. And you're missing this remarkable epic that the church is seeing. There's never been a finer time to be a faithful Catholic since the second century than what we are experiencing today. And it's not because, it's not in spite of all the problems around us, it's precisely because of them. So if people preach despair and fear, they're making a huge mistake. If people internalize fear um, and discouragement and despair, they're going to miss the moment that God has given to us. Um, we, are, we 
are called on this earth to struggle. And we're not called to ease and comfort. And amen, this is the way he set things up. Well, you know, he gave us the game plan. He gave us the blueprint on how to to keep ourselves centered. It's called the Bible. It's called the gospel. And oh, by the way, folks, don't be despaired because Revelation says in the end we win. So there should be no reason for despair, but happiness. That's how I look at it. Am I wrong or am I right? Well, of course, that's correct. <laughs> In the meantime, we've been, giving, we've been given a job to do. You know, it, it, it's like we cannot wait on this earth for end times and then we're going to be happy. It's, it's, it's important that we know that the end of the story is the, the triumph of our Lord. In the meantime, we've been given a job to do. And it's manning the bedpans at hospitals. It's, it's lobbying the state capitol on, on, on life and family issues. It's, uh, you know, starting a petition. I mean, this, this week, my organization, or over the last two weeks, my organization has been reporting on a new uh, report from UNICEF that's pro-pornography for children. And so we reported on it all last week. We're reporting on it this week. UNICEF has pulled it down, put it back up, pulled it down, um, and we're running a petition on our website. It's got 6,228 signatures that we're going to present to the executive director of, of UNICEF. There is so much for people to do. You know, I say in the book there are halos hanging from the lowest branches of the trees. All you need to do is reach up and grab one. So, yes, we know what the end of the story is. In the meantime, we've got a job to do. And by the way, it doesn't matter whether our pastors are doing the right thing or not. It's irrelevant. God has given us a task, and we may not shirk it. That's, that is absolutely true. We can't sit on our laurels and wait for everyone to do everything else around us. We have to act, and that's what we're sent here for. You know, I, I say that I am here for a purpose, and it is up for me to, to determine and recognize what that purpose is. It could be doing this, getting the word out in this manner, or it could be very simply helping my neighbor across the street. But we each have a purpose and it's up for us to fulfill that purpose, recognize it, and fulfill it, which is what you talk about in your book. Correct. Well, you know, I want to thank you for joining us, Austin. It has been a blast. People can find you where? Well, my organization is uh, c-fam.org. That's c-fam, like family.org. And you can sign the petition there uh, on, on UNICEF. You can subscribe, subscribe to our weekly report called the Friday Facts, which is originally reported material from, uh, from the UN that week. Um, and you can find my book at Amazon. It's been number one in Christian apologetics new releases. It's been number one in Catholic new releases. Uh, so it's doing quite well. And by the way, it is the shot in the arm that people need in these dark days. It is. It is. And a matter of fact, now that I'm done with it, uh, my mother doesn't uh, do the Kindle. So I'm going to have to now get a hard copy of the book and give it to her. Uh, I gave her a book the other day and she read it cover to cover. And trust me, my mom is going to turn 89 July 4th. She's a July 4th baby. And uh, 
She's there every day with her rosaries and her prayer book. <laughs> and I sit yeah, around the sun. Her. Go ahead, get some sun, mom. But yeah, she's she's still she's still at it. <laughs> so God bless her. She she will love but this also, book. I think I think she will absolutely will because now when she watches Newsmax up on the on the TV, I say, "Well, uh, that person's been on my show. That person's been on that person." <laughs> so oh, very you'll funny. be up on Newsmax the next day or two. <laughs> so it's been well, a thank pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And God bless you for the hard work you do. And this is Memorial Day, so let's say a prayer for all those who gave their lives for us. God bless. Thank you. All right. Austin Roos, check him out. The website is up on the show description. Just click on his name, and it's c-fam.org. All right, Curtis, we're waiting for our next guest to call in. Um, I don't know what's going on today, but uh, I guess people took off early for the uh, holidays. I don't know. I think we're being dissed. I don't. I have no idea what happened to him. I called both numbers, and um, I left a message on both, so... Um, maybe he's out well, golf, golfing. I don't know. <laughs> he's out there with Biden golfing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we'll, well um, yeah, well, I, I left a message uh, with his agent. I sent her an email to see if that can kick him in the butt. But uh, otherwise, we're going to have to rebook him for a different date. Mm. Yeah. We I don't know. If, um, yeah. What time is this our next is, guest for? 2.30? Uh, yeah. It should be 2.30 would be Craig. Yes. Um, that's yes. Stop hiding, start healing is Craig. But, you know, it's just a shame because uh, he was going to talk about what's going on. Um, we had this thing with Prince Harry. He and Meghan, his wife, have fled the United Kingdom, and now living here in the United States in a really posh, million, multi-million dollar mansion. And he tried to diss our First Amendment. He doesn't understand it. He thinks we're bonkers. Um, no, we're not bonkers. Uh, we actually fought you Brits so that we could retain our God-given rights. And I mean... Yeah, here is a person who came from privilege and such wealth and was in the public eye and had such admiration and fans and followers. And he comes over here and just treats us like crap. I don't think so. I don't think so. But I did want to talk to him about that, you know, how Americans are thinking more European than as Americans. Uh, our founding ideals and principles are not being taught, Curtis. You know, what you get the 1612 uh, project and uh, critical race theory, and we're supposed to be nothing but a bunch of bigots, racists, slaveholders, you know, white privilege. Excuse me. I, I don't know where the heck that white privilege came from. You know, I didn't ask to be born in this skin, but what I do when I'm a, an adult. Now, I'm responsible for that. I'm not responsible for what someone did generations before me. That person has to answer for that. They probably have in heaven or hell. But I'm responsible for what I do here and now. And instead of being a meritocracy, 
a, a, a society where we are responsible for our own actions, it's easier to play the victim card. Oh, woe is me. You don't understand. Well, excuse me. Try walking in my shoes. You want to take care of two well, handicapped people 24-7? Tell me what, uh, what a hard life it is. Well, the lesson I believe Harry and Megan are missing is the fact that they themselves got tired of being controlled and bossed around and um, being, you know, told how to act and, and, and perform in the public eye. So they escaped it and came here for pretty much the same reason our founding fathers came here to escape all of that. And I think they just just totally missed out on that part of um, the reason why they fled. I'm not going to say they just came here. They fled England for the same reason, but they don't seem to connect with why our founding fathers came here. <laughs> you know, they, they had all this privilege and all this adoration and the price that they were asked to pay for those privileges was, oh, all right, you do a ribbon cutting here, you attend a ceremony over there. You know, you're one of the royal families. The nation looks up to you for leadership. So, you know, so you're asked to attend a chicken dinner. Big deal. But they couldn't handle that. And if they were told they had to behave in a certain manner to present a certain prestige or I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to think of the word. I can't even think of it right now. But to give some sort of a public image, to keep the nation unified. And, well, if you want that fancy house and those cars and the millions of dollars and the income and everything that goes with it, well, there's a price to pay for that. Now, if you don't want that and you're fleeing, oh, you fleed really hard. You really went into the tenants. Uh, you're in the slum right now. You're in a multi-million dollar mansion. Oh, woe is me. My family doesn't understand me. Uh, they never gave me the, the respect. Or the blah, blah. I, I mean, I'm so sick and tired of this crap. We we fought you SOBs. We kicked you out. We, we kicked their heinies out for our freedoms. And now you're going to whine and complain that no one understands you? Really, give me a break. I don't know, Curtis. I just, I, I have no tolerance. Just, I, I don't even get what it is that people admire so much. I mean, the queen, I can admire. She's grace and glory. She holds it together, despite the fact she just lost her husband, her true love. But you have a whiny little brat like that? Come on. He doesn't deserve an ounce of my respect. But that's my side of the story, yeah, like, Curtis. <laughs> like you said, they, they grew up in privilege and um, not having to really answer for anything in life. All they had to do was perform certain function, and, um, and and that that was their life. But I don't know to to flee over here and then to. Um, Talk about you know talk down our society and and the principles um, our country was founded on. It's ludicrous. I mean they just they're myopic. They they can't see no further than their own um, um, self interest, as I can you know tell. So you know. Well, you know. Guilty 
be they'll be lauded by the Hollywood celebrity types and all that, you know, be welcomed all around by people like Obama and them. But really, I think they're going to remain miserable people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And someone ought to school Prince Harry about English common law. Because a lot of those rights, those God-given rights that we declare in our Declaration of Independence and in our Bill of Rights are in the original English common law that King Harold codified. The right for self-determination, the right for self-preservation, the right of free speech. This was all English common law that recognize these God-given rights. So, Prince Harry, you don't understand our First Amendment, then you don't understand original English common law, period. You know, the ignorance of people that claim that they're superior to us is amazing. And just because you hold a title don't mean you're educated. (laughs) (laughs) Let me educate you. <laughs> Let me educate you. I'll, I'll tell you a thing or two here. Oh man! Oh man! Oh man! But anyway, uh, geez, I don't know. I, we've got so much more. We're waiting for our next guest to call in. So I, I sound like I'm a little out of it. I probably am because I was I was up late last night and uh, hi 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 Anyway, mm. oh here we go. We got another AOC. Um, <laughs> Joshua Jackson wrote AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Gortez. Um, she's the one who lied about where she was on January 6th to make it sound like she was a victim. It said that she was actually in the Capitol and she was afraid they were going to storm her and, and, and beat her up or whatever. She thought it was her last. She wasn't even in the Capitol building. She was like almost half a mile away in the offices. Uh, So she was speaking uh, to a weekly public radio show, Latino USA, on Friday, last Friday. And she said members of Congress effectively served in war because they were in D.C. when the U.S. Capitol was breached. Uh, So she claims that she was deeply traumatized during the event and had deeply affected lawmaking and impacted the legislative process, she said. Um, Well, uh, (laughs) that went over like a wet lead balloon with former U.S. Green Beret uh, Congressman Michael Waltz. Uh, He blasted her. He says, lady, you don't know what it's like when you have grenades hurled at you and they're taking pot shots at you. You have no idea what it's like to be in a field of battle which he was. Um, so she claims that she's traumatized, got PTSD because she was in Washington, D.C., not inside the Capitol, in her office about three quarters of a mile away, not even, not, not even quite half a mile away, but she was not even on the Capitol grounds, but she was hiding in her office where no one was coming near her. She's traumatized. She's as if she survived a war. Oh, my God. Drama queen. Go ahead, Curtis. I I bet she came out of the office and from under the desk to to celebrate George Floyd. I mean, the airways were saturated with that um, George Floyd thing. 
um, they they seem to have a knack for making heroes out of certain people, and, and you know it, it's sad the way he 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 died, but I really don't think they tell the full story of how that incident began, and for them to make this guy a hero, you know, at the national level, I'm not you know sure about that because they have this thing about law enforcement killing blacks. Uh, I don't think it matters if you're a white cop or a black cop, but more so they get agitated if there's a white cop. Yet, as we all know, they have no no problem with blacks killing other blacks in urban areas. You don't even hear anything about that. No. And it's going on no. uh, maybe, maybe like 30 times more than any person being killed by law enforcement. Well, I'm going to give a shout out because I see more people showing up in our telephone switchboard. Uh, So if you are our next guest, please press one so that I can recognize you uh, because I wasn't given the number that you'd be calling in from. Uh, So if you are, just press one. And yes, it is. Okay, let's bring on our next guest, our next victim in the lineup. Um, Boy, is he in for trouble here. Uh, Craig Brown. Good afternoon, Craig. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Uh, Well, I'm a little Looney Tunes today, but that's all right. (laughs) We'll get through this. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Um, You've got a new book out, which I had fun reading. Uh, It is titled Stop Hiding, Start Healing. And i got to be honest, when I was starting to read it, I was getting angry at the first part of the book. And then I saw where you were going, and then I did a little be slap on the back of my head and go stupid you're making a conclusion before you get to the end of the book it is a really good book which opens should help a lot of people out there that need help uh to find Uh their way back so um Uh you have a very interesting background that you had to come through in order to reach this point in your life and i'd rather have you tell us where you came from and how you got here where did I come from? Well, I keep asking myself that, <clears throat> you know, after looking back uh, for all, all these years. But I have a really good idea. I have a really good idea because I've drilled down on it and I have studied uh, in depth uh, where, where it began and where I am today. But um, I was born in Washington, D.C., and my dad was a minister um, just over the border in a little town uh, called Mount Rainier. Grew up in a church home, and uh, our whole goal was to make my dad look good. As preacher's kids, uh, we have certain reputations, and I uh, held up to that reputation. Um, I was the youngest of three kids, and our whole life was um, it was very interesting. I loved the church life. I really loved it great environment to grow up in. Um, But as I grew older, I realized that what I was seeing from the pulpit from my dad was totally different what I was experiencing behind closed doors. Um, He was a man that that struggled with his own demons. Uh, He was kind of angry, somewhat of a narcissist. And my mom was a great 
preacher's wife, just making dad look good, make us look good. And so we had to perform, you know. We always had to be on. And that's a lot of pressure to put on young people and all of us, not just myself or preacher's kids, but all of us at a very young age develop coping mechanisms and coping skills to deal with pain, shame, abandonment, hurt, whatever. And uh, none of that was ever discussed in our family ever. Um, and I just had to escape. I had to, you know, my dad wasn't really invested in my life at all, and I could count on one hand the number of things I did with him as his son and have fingers left over. So he just didn't seem to be uh, invested in or interested in anything, my sisters and I, any of our interests and what have I was a really good athlete and what have you and participated in a lot of sports. Um, And then I was just searching. You know, I'm just looking for... Uh, belonging. I was longing for some type of, you know, um, acceptance, um, what have you. And so I just wasn't getting it in the home. And uh, once you become a teenager and grow up and you're in high school and you're not getting that, well, you're you're certainly going to find it somewhere. And I was searching. Um, So I, um, when it came time, I started drinking in high school, just at parties and stuff like that. But when it came time to go to college, I could not wait to get out of the house could not wait. And so I ended up on the college campus with zero self-discipline, zero self-control, uh, very little self-esteem, self-worth. I was a really good athlete. I was supposed to play basketball in, high, in college, and I could have, and I didn't. I got to college, and I went to the party instead of going to class. And so I did, uh, and then I dropped out of college. It just wasn't happening. And I came back to Washington, D.C., started working at a business. Uh, bar restaurant in Washington, D.C., and it just so happened to be owned by the biggest cocaine dealer on the East Coast in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. So I was 19, cool. 19, 19, 20 years old, and I am in this environment, and with no self-control, self-discipline, and searching, I got sucked up into that drug world um, real easily because I had no... No goals, no morals, no purpose, no mission. And I, I just operated in that what I described as a pit of hell, and it was total pit of hell. And I operated in that environment for a very long time. I ended up in court. I was pulled over, arrested. I, you know, I in multiple car wrecks. I hurt people. I got hurt. It was just a mess, total mess. And I'm, I'm looking at this. You know, um, part of me is looking at it, saying. Um, what am I doing here? But at the same time, because of my pain, my shame, failure, it was my comfort zone. That's all I knew. That was my identity. And so I just thought, well, I'm just, I guess I'm just going to operate in this for a while. Um, and tell me either end up dead or, you know, just the life is dysfunction. But, um, and then it happened um, many years later, many years later, July 15th, 1985. Uh, what I, it was like an epiphany. Uh, it just, I had this, uh, what, see, what we don't know from a spiritual standpoint is that God's hand is on every single one of us. And I, even though I grew up in the church, I had no relationship with God, knew nothing of a personal relationship or anything of that nature, but the seeds were planted. So after being at the beach on the East Coast uh, for about three days uh, straight, um, I was on my way back, and I on the road back, I just I had this 
amazing epiphany that that it was just like you got to get out of this you've got to get out of this you're going to end up dead or in, in, in total dis- destruction and that day began uh, a process of myself extricating myself from that lifestyle i didn't go to rehab i didn't go to anything i was at a level where i had to i had to change i had to change and so I started working out again. I started training again. I started eating better. I got a job. I I began to feel better about myself, but I was still miserable. And I was like that for about six years. Things started to get better, but I was still miserable because I had not dealt with all the trauma, the abuse, the pain, and everything that I had left behind me. I hadn't dealt with it, and it hung around my neck like a big weight, and I and I could not get rid of it until until my sister called and said, Dad's dying. And now here's a guy I didn't have a relationship with, really, and I loved him, loved him as my dad, but I didn't have any relationship with him. And my sister called, and I went to the intensive care unit, and I was standing there by his bed, and my whole life came rushing before me, everything. And I stood there, and I said to myself, you're a complete failure. And your dad's going to – the one guy that I wanted support from, tell me I'm, he's proud of me, his love is dying. And I've done nothing with my life, nothing. And it shook me to the core. And like the first chapter of my book, when the pain is greater than your fear, you're ready to change. And the pain level in my life – with my, watching my dad dying in the intensive care unit, that was it. That was done. Next day, I I didn't know how to, but I did. And I cried out to God and I said, God, I, I can't do this anymore. I cannot take this anymore. The burden, the pain, the shame, the guilt, the failure, everything is too much for me and I can't do this anymore. And I need you to come into my life. I need you to take over my life. And he did. It was miraculous, absolutely miraculous. And he, my, I, it took for about an hour of this crying out. And when I stood up, when I was done, my life had changed forever. My whole outlook on life, the burden was lifted. Everything was different. My, my everything, and I mean everything, but my recovery began on that day. It was on that day when I began day one of my um, commitment to recover and to, and to heal, to be restored, to get well, and to deal head-on with the pain that I was feeling. And it's been like that for 36 years now. Well, you know, in, in your book, I'm going to quote you exactly. Uh, you wrote, pain motivates action. Choices and change pain is really a warning sign or an alert system. When in pain, whether physically, mentally, or emotionally, it detects and warns there is a problem in need of immediate attention. It is solely up to us to decide whether or not to take the necessary steps to alleviate that pain. The old Mm -hmm. me would run from the pain. The new me runs through the pain. It's the only way. We will heal, improve, and grow. And it's funny because I've had some things in my life that I didn't realize I was in pain until I saw the path that I was on. 
and it wasn't anything close to what you you've gone through. Uh, nothing. Uh, well, depends upon how you want to look at it. Um, but I had to confront someone and finally, you know, confront the individual that caused the pain and that mm-hmm. had set me on the path I was going. And I mm-hmm. also then had to recognize that I went into certain situations and relationships that were not healthy and good for me. And mm-hmm. as soon as I turned around and recognized that and accepted it yep. and yep. walk away from it, but also know that whatever it was, it's made me who I am today, which is not a bad Amen. thing. It's given me strength no. and has placed me in situations where I am no longer afraid for, of the confrontation. I will face it That's head right. on and bro- boldly. But I did this on my own. What you do is help people to recognize it and then yeah. to guide them through. That's exactly what I do, and you're absolutely right. Um, Everything I am today, Anne, everything, and I mean everything, husband, father, friend, people helper, recovery pastor, businessman, is a result of my deepest pain, everything. And, you know, where you say that you, you know, seek the attention of a parent, uh, for me it was a, a, another sibling in the family, and I realized that, you know, no, I don't need and when right. one day, decades later, he said something, and it's like, okay, all right, well, I'll accept it. I still haven't mm-hmm. forgotten, but I'll accept it. But, you know, mm-hmm. people have to face it on their own, on their own mm-hmm. terms, which is what you mm-hmm. help them do. You, you say, all right, fine, you've got to recognize it. The first thing you've got to do is recognize it, and then we'll work yes. through it. And, what, and you're, you're see, absolutely I, right. Well, what I, I started to get angry with was, was that you were saying, like, you've got to take it out into the open. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Uh, I don't think the whole world needs to hear about this. And there are certain individuals in my life who caused them too much pain. And I cannot deal with that responsibility of right. causing them pain. But what, right. as I was reading, then I came to the chapter where it said, no, it's done as, as if it was triple uh, AA reading. You know, what stays there, what's said there, stays there. It doesn't get passed around. Oh, absolutely. The most important thing one should ever do with the delicate and sensitive areas and the hurt in their life, the past, the pain of the past, um, you know, whatever it is, it should not be broadcast to everybody. And that's where people run into trouble because they have dysfunctional, hurt people around them who are trying to fix them. And people are not, do not have the capacity to fix other people. And I'm very clear about that in my book, but also over the last 22 years of, of caring for others. And that is you find someone that you trust and you find someone that is safe. And if you so choose to open up to them, that is your choice. You, it's the one thing you can con- con- can control. And when you have an environment like I've been operating in for 22 years, I can say without a doubt that it's full of good, trusting, safe people who have one of the most, uh, who possess one of the most underused caregiving principles around, and that's empathy. 
See, when you've been to the pit of hell, you have empathy for those that are in it or getting out of it. And when you go to the, when you've been to the deepest valley, you have empathy. When you've experienced death, grief, divorce, abortion, addiction, shame, and you've experienced that, you have empathy for that other person. And you're a trained listener. And you're able to listen. You might not say a word, but for the person that's struggling, that comes in, finds a trusted individual or a safe person or more, more people, maybe more than one, in a nice, safe, small group, healing, healing just happened. It, it'll happen. And I've seen it happen in thousands of lives. Well, see, one of the Great. things that we don't utilize a lot is the ability to listen and let the other person talk. Too many of us think it's about us and you've got to interject yourself into the story. No, you don't do that. You sit back and so true. listen. Yeah. And then you react to whatever it is they're saying, whether it's to give them sympathy or to maybe help guide them into a different path. You know, there's, exactly. there actually, you have to be honest. There are some people you simply cannot help. No matter what, oh, you, you cannot oh, help. And yeah, they'll cry out absolutely. for help nonstop, but they don't want the help. They just want someone to cry on. You've got to recognize yeah. those. And then you concentrate do. your attention on those that you can help. Absolutely. absolutely. And that's – oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Chris. No, I was just going to – just a co-host. I was going to say, what do you tell people who, who – seek their self-worth in social media and how many likes they get and, and things like that. You know, they, they tend to, to outsource their, their um, love and, and, and rely on others to fulfill that which they find empty in themselves. That's a great question. Um, yeah, a lot of people do. Well, first of all, it's all, all artificial. Um, it's all made up of people that don't care. It's all made up, you know, uh, likes and all this other stuff. And it's generally a, a person that is really hurting and a person that is in dire need of attention and a person that is in dire need of being, um, of being recognized, right, and identified that needs all of that, all of that uh, attention, likes, comments, and what have you. Now, I can speak from a spiritual standpoint, and that's, that is my life. When people get a hold of the love of God, you'll never care about another like, ever, ever. It won't even matter when you get a hold of that. And that's the, uh, that's the environment that I have uh, worked in uh, for so long. Far too many of us put, put people on pedestals. Far too many of us put our put emphasis on the individual. All that leads to is betrayal and abandonment, hurt, pain, go around. If there are, please let me know, but I have yet to find one. But people long for, it's, it, you know, we all have a love tank, man. We all have, uh, want to be accepted in our life. And when we don't have that, we'll look everywhere. And you see it all over social media. It's kind of disgusting, actually. But, it, but, uh, but at the same time, it's hurt people, empty people, you know, looking for love, as the song goes, in all the wrong places. But when you get a hold of the love of God, when you get a hold of the love of God, man, I tell you what, because I, I was searching, 
I wanted it from my coaches who disappointed me. I wanted it from my dad who never gave it to me. I wanted it from my, my immediate family who I hid from. I wanted it from, and I found it, and it was all artificial. It was all wrong until I gave up and surrendered. And when that love entered in, oh, gosh, it was amazing. <laughs> and, it, and, and all your listeners can, can latch on to that as well. It's not very difficult. It's not difficult no. at all to to turn the phone off, computer, and set aside and say, God, I, I, don't, this guy, I don't know what this guy's talking about, God, but he said something about the love that you and, – and he does. He just adores us and loves us, but we allow our dysfunction, we allow our insecurities, we allow our fears to, 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 to be a barrier to everything he wants to give us. And we have to, we have to get those out of the way. Well, you know, it, it's a matter of stepping out of their comfort zone. It, you know something tangible. You can see it. You can feel it. You can touch it. You can taste it. You, you see the numbers on the computer screen or your smart device, and that's something tangible to you. But in fact, it's all, as you said, artificial, or as you call it, masks. And you described five different types of masks in your book that people mm-hmm. wear. And you, somewhere along the way, you'll find yourself in one of those five categories, hiding behind. Mm-hmm. But when yeah. you finally take that, that courageous step and step out of your comfort zone, and it's like you're going to go into a free fall, because that's exactly what God asked you to do. T- step off that cliff and just free fall into his arms, but know Mm -hmm. that his love is going to catch you. When you're able to take that final step, then it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter how many likes you get. It doesn't matter how many Instagram hits you have, whatever, your TikTok or whatever the heck you're on. And I got to tell you, honestly, you ask me how many people follow me. I have no idea. (laughs) People ask me how many people listen to the show. I don't know. I don't check. I don't care. All right, I know is right. I've been given a voice, and the voice is here to help people out there, to inform them, mm-hmm. to show them something new. And there's many times my co-host Curtis will tell you that uh, I will end up with a show that just falls together, and everyone has some sort of the same message. And I said, this is good mm-hmm. Lord guiding with you know, how the guests fall in place. You know, there's, there's mm-hmm. a purpose, there's a reason for each and every Absolutely. one of us. It's up to yep. us to recognize what that purpose is. Well, well Curtis mentioned self-worth. And when you're in the pit of hell and you're in the pit of your struggle and you're, when you're dealing with pain and shame, failure, you're, it's, you take on that identity as you're, uh, of that. You're, you're, and that's why our self-worth and self-esteem and everything is so tarnished and so, so, so frayed because uh, we've taken on the identity of my struggle we've taken on the identity of alcohol or drugs pornography or whatever whatever that is and one thing uh curtis and ann you'll never hear me say uh call someone an addict or call someone an alcoholic Uh, those are those are labels they're labels that do more harm than good and here's why because when people enter into enter enter into christ-centered recovery You'll never, ever hear that label. It's about changing our identity. I'm not going to stand up and say I'm an addict or I'm, um, I'm an alcoholic. Or I'm going to stand. You know what? I, we, we stand up. I stand up and say I'm Craig Brown. I'm a man of God, and I happen to struggle with this. Or I'm Beth, and I'm a woman of God, and I happen to struggle with this. 
labels damage self-worth. Identity, it's about pivot. I'm going to pivot from the old identity, and I'm, I'm going to pivot to a new identity in God, and, have, and I'm, I identify with him. I am his child. I, de I identify with him. And when you do that, it changes your entire perspective. Because if I sit there and say I'm just an addict, well, that, well my self-worth is just diminished tremendously. Well, also, we have to realize that everything we do is our choice. We make a conscious decision, whether you end mm -hmm. up with that thing of pornography or uh, that mm -hmm. next needle you're going to oh, inject yeah. or the next drink. It's all choice. It is a conscious choice. So it's up yes. to you to make the informed and correct choice. And what God mm -hmm. is saying, hey, it's your choice. You can pick up that next shot or you can just throw sure. the bottle out. You know, it, right. it is up to you, right. and you give them a pathway, and you say, "All right, fine. We understand that there's pain. Let's let's examine it, and see what yeah. we can do to get not just but beyond the pain, but to recognize it and to control it, and don't let exactly. it control you." Exactly. And these are all things I learned the hard way on my own, <laughs> and I'm yeah, reading about the book. I know it's it's we do it's it's a life is is an amazing landscape man life is just a beautiful landscape of learning growing challenges uh victory joy some painful some this and you know i've gotten uh it's interesting I, you mentioned the choice um i've gotten in more than one um, discussion. Uh, see, I'm a firm believer that addiction is a choice. I made the choice. Every person that picks up the bottle, the pill, the pornography, the food, it's a choice. Okay? It, 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 it's one really bad decision based on one's emotional uh, uh, makeup uh, for whatever reason, and they made that one decision. And the choice was made, and all of a sudden it turned into a horrible, horrific habit. Now, people always say disease. I'm not a believer in disease. I'm a believer that is a warped desire. Now, it's true. When people begin to use things, there is some brain altering that does go on. No doubt about that. But it's, the brain can be re put back together. That's not a, so it's not, it's not that it's uh, that way forever. Because when you get a hold of your desire, Right When you work on your desire for that substance, that pornography, that food, whatever that may be, when, that, when you get a handle on that and, and manage it in a healthy way, and especially from a spiritual standpoint, that can, that can all be changed. So, you know, I never saw myself as, an, as, a, as someone that was diseased back then. So I don't see that way now either, and I get into one more interesting conversation with people about that. <laughs> well, you know, it, it is a great handbook and a way for people to understand. And listen, you're not alone out there. Everyone has this form or another, whether they recognize it or not. Yeah. Each and every one of yeah. us have it in within us. But you recognize it, you center yourself in your faith, and you work to overcome it. You know, it, mm -hmm. it, it may be at this moment a hindrance, but hey, wait a minute. Here's a handout. Here's a pathway. I'm here. If you want someone just yes. to listen, I am here. And that's what right. someone sometimes needs, just to, to, 
I I, I got to tell you a true story. This happened to me just about two weeks ago. Um, my listeners know I've got two full-time handicapped people in my house, and I'm the third one. So we got three three gimps with a limp in here. Uh, so I got dueling mm-hmm. walkers, um, and I was really stressed. I must have been running around like a chicken with my head cut off. And mm-hmm. a, a friend of mine stopped by. He looked at me and he said, "Come here." He pulls me out of the house, sits me down on the front porch. He goes, "Sit down. Now talk to me." And all he did was just sit there and listen. And yeah. I didn't even know, honestly, what was mm-hmm. bothering me until I started. And then just everything just gushed out. Everyone mm. needs to do that every now and then to realize, yeah, God sent this person to me at this moment because he knew if I kept on going on the path I was going, I was going to hurt myself. I would probably get sick or something because I was pushing myself to my limit. And he recognized that. And he says, nope, you got to stop. Mm-hmm. You got to slow down. And mm-hmm. this is something that I've friend. seen in your book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, the, but the hardest part from, or for those that are struggling is isolation. Uh, they, they, they are, are so afraid to open up their heart and share. And, you know, every, I've, I've said it multiple times, and that is everything you've always wanted is on the other side of fear. And people are very afraid of sharing and opening up their hearts. And that's why it's, I drilled down on the fact that it's not just everybody you have to do that with. Everyone should have a friend like yours that comes and brings you to the front porch. Every one of us. There is someone for everybody. There truly, truly is. And it's a matter of finding them. Now, of course, for me, I would look at the local church where the gospel is being preached and where there's a healthy, healthy church uh, locally. And uh, more often than not, there's going to be a Christ Center recovery program or something of that nature that's there. And you can find someone. Um, and I, I tell everybody, every, you know, every show I've had the privilege of being on, and yours included, if you ever need to talk, just reach out to me. You know, I'm available. Uh, and I have a team of 30, 30, 30 leaders that uh, I work with. And I know there's someone. And everything is now done virtually, pretty much, or by phone. We can make it happen for you if if you're struggling. Well, I'm lucky I'm married to the man I am married because a lot of the recovery I had was when once I started dating him and then eventually marrying him. But true story, and, and no one really believes this. But the very first time I saw him, I turned around to my girlfriend and says, "I don't know who that man is at the end of the bar," but I said, "One day I'm going to marry him." And she looked at me, she said, you don't even know his name. I said, it's the first time I've ever seen him, but I know I'm marrying him. And two years later, we were married. <laughs> Your story. That is awesome. That's a great story. That's a wonderful story. Yeah, imagine that. Imagine that, the guy at the end of the bar. That is cool. And last week, we, we hit our 20th 28th wedding anniversary. 30 years together, but 28 years married. <laughs> yeah, my wife and I did too. Happy anniversary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 28. Yeah. That's a beautiful. That's a good amount. That's a good time. And I'm still learning. How about you? <laughs> oh, every day. Every day. Every day. <laughs> Sometimes it's every, not always I'm the best to, learning, but. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm trying to get a PhD in woman, and it's, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not close, believe me. 
<laughs> well, the reason why we're called women because men cause the woe. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I've heard that. That's good. Whoa, man. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I know. We make it interesting, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Always amazing. <laughs> Sometimes yes. I wonder where you, what you guys are thinking. <laughs> I know. No, honey. I know. That I that know. has gone in this draw for the last ten years. Why are you putting it over in that draw? No, no, <laughs> dear. Are wow. you paying attention, yeah. honey? <laughs> I know. I know. Are you listening? Do you listen to me? <laughs> oh boy, lots to learn. Well. It is. It is. And your book is very interesting. Stop hiding. Start healing. And I think our world needs a lot more of that. One of the things you know you pointed out is that people are afraid of being alone, but yet they cling to these social networks where you're just another screen name or a picture on the other side right. of an of a electronic device. <clears throat> people right. are accepting that as true friendship. But we forget mm-hmm. we are social animals. We crave yes. company. We crave the actual physical presence of someone else with us. And mm-hmm. with this COVID <clears throat> pandemic and the isolation, are you finding an uptick in your ministry? Oh, sure. Yeah. We've been, we've been virtual for the last year. Actually, we're just getting back in the building <laughs> for church services, but we're just getting back into offering uh, the, the recovery ministry on June 11th. But absolutely, it, uh, we've had a, quite a number. Of, and it's also it's the silver lining in going virtual is that the person that would never step foot into the meeting will, will watch it online. They'll find out about it, and they'll watch it online. And that's just a beautiful thing because not everybody has the courage to walk through the door, and I get that. I totally get that. So being online has been, a, has been an absolute blessing. But. The challenge is I'm a firm believer that will heal heart-to-heart, face-to-face, and sitting in circles, right? And when that has been taken away, especially for those that are in the elevated level of their recovery and really, really need it, it has wreaked havoc on their lives. It's been very, very difficult. Um, But, you know, uh, we can only do, you know, with COVID and all the restrictions, especially in our county, now that things have lessened and the restrictions are going away, we're going to get back face-to-face and pick up where we left off and do even better, I hope. Well, where can people find you? Me? Uh, they can find me a couple of different places. Uh, I have a Facebook page. They can find me on my personal page at Craig Brown. Uh, they can find me on my um, uh, Stop Hiding, Start Healing Facebook page, Stop Hiding, Start Healing. They can, uh, I have two websites, StopHidingStartHealingBook.com, StopHidingStartHealingBook.com, and also my personal website, Craig D. as in David, CraigDBrown.com. CraigDBrown.com. Well, Craig, thank you for all the hard work. And, you know, you opened my eyes a little bit and helped me understand what I went through and how I managed it on my own. Uh, (laughs) Well, good. But, you know, people can do it. If they look at your life history, what you've gone through, and how you've changed 
you, you, how you brought yourself now more centered in Christ and help people yes. recover mm-hmm. and become more centered in their lives with Christ. Uh, it's an amazing thing that you do. And you're welcome to come back on the show anytime. I'd love to, just uh, anytime. I, I really appreciate the invitation. And Curtis, it's great being with you, too. All right. My pleasure. Thank you so much. God bless it. Uh, Craig uh, Brown, check out his website. And, uh, oh, man, what an awesome, awesome thing. Now, we got your uh, friend over here, uh, and I know I'm going to mess up his last name, and he's going to forgive me. Uh, (laughs) So let me try this for the first time. Curtis, don't don't prep me. Don't don't give me any hints. Want to welcome to the show our latest victim in the roundup, uh, Derby Oyeha. Did I say that right? That's close. Uyoa. Uyoa. Okay. Perfect. All right. But don't worry about it. Just call me Derby. <laughs> or don't call you late for dinner. <laughs> One or the other. <laughs> now, um, I, I have I have some friends that were uh, Cuban refugees, uh, and they have stories somewhat similar to yours, where they came to the United States as Castro was coming to power in Cuba. Uh, some of them around the same age as you were when you came to the United States. And the stories are all kind of similar to you. And each and every one of them has become an activist in the conservative uh, movement in support of our republic, uh, which is very important. And uh, And when I see someone like you, I wonder, how do you address kids today that are being taught socialism and communism is good? What do you say to them, Derby? I mean, it's got to be painful to watch this. Okay, I'll tell you. But first, I'd like to say, Curtis, thank you for the invitation. And to you, Annie uh, and Curtis, uh, thank you for all you do to fight our enemies, foreign and domestic. And to the audience, I'd like to say that I'm running for office. I am not looking for a job, not selling anything. What I have to say is from the bottom of my heart, which means I speak in plain English and no political correctness. I do this because I'm greatly concerned about the future of our country. I do not want the U.S. to turn into another Cuba or Venezuela. And with our current president in power, we're heading that way unless we do something about it. But you know, uh, we are uh, under a communist regime dictatorship right now. Uh, most Americans don't want to acknowledge it, but it is so. Will you have them uh, something there? else I want to say here? Uh, after Curtis confirmed my invitation, I went to your website and okay. I read. SouthernSense.com. Also, I read Southern Common Sense. I like that. (laughs) Well, I like to think that I have some of that, too. Or we could just call it plain common sense. Well, a lot of what I have to say is just plain common sense. And you don't have to be a brain surgeon like Ben Carson to figure some of these things out. (laughs) No, not at all. But that's what is missing. People don't use common sense. And they do what is the flavor of the month or what feels good at this moment. Or they mimic what someone else told them instead of stopping thinking and then 
acting after careful thought. Instead, you know, the teacher says, you know, it's critical race theory, uh, your white privilege, you know, I, I'm bad. So I'm not equal to anyone else. So I, I, because I'm born with white skin, I must be racist. Without taking to merit who you actually are as an individual. And, and we're being fed this pablum and we've got mass mania now and everyone's drinking the Kool-Aid. Yeah, for sure. Now, you asked me about young people. Well, I was a teacher, college teacher, for 38 years. And I would say uh, the first day of classes, hey, I was born in Cuba, and I hate communism, hate liberals, and all that. And and after that, I taught the subject. <laughs> <laughs> well, you would have loved me when I went to college. I had rather liberal professors, and that was before, decades before, it's as bad as it is now. And at least back then, they entertained debate. You were able to enter a debate and get both sides of the, the story. Uh, but you don't even see that today now. You've got cancel culture. How dare you disagree with me uh, because you're a Tea Party person or you're a Republican or you're a conservative or you're a libertarian? No, your, your opinion no longer matters. What we say goes. The law for thee, but not for me. And that's what we're facing yes. today. As you said, we already have sunk that low. Um, go ahead. Well, no, I'm just waiting for you to jump in. I, I sometimes go on these rants, but just feel free to jump in. Because well, this is what I, you I'd face like to address Cuba. The, the most important topic of today, which is okay. not illegal immigration or trade or education or even the media monopoly, or the pandemic, so-called pandemic. It is the November 3rd, 2020 election fraud. And it really bothers me when, when Republicans say we have to regain the House or Senate in 22 or 24. And I say, are you stupid or what? If Democrats <laughs> cheated with Trump as president, Think of how much more cheating they will do with Biden or Kamala as president. We'll never have another fair and transparent election. That simple. And then do, I, I do not blame the Democrats for cheating. I know, I know they do that all the time. But I blame the Republicans for allowing the cheating, for not fighting back and not supporting Trump when he needed them. That's to me so important, but uh, too many Republicans don't care. They accept cheating, and I don't. No, and and fortunately, we do have now, like in Arizona, uh, Georgia, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, where they're going back, they're starting to look at those ballots and say, wait a minute, we definitely did have problems uh, with the voting. Uh, we also have the Heritage Foundation that is tracking this stuff and then documenting, proving instances of actual voter fraud so it is out there it's a matter of our lamestream media being honest in its coverage but this is where tyranny comes in where our voices are silenced because we allow the tyranny of the few to control the rest of us which is what you fled yes and that was 60 years ago i came here temporarily 
to get away from uh, being sent to Russia to be indoctrinated at age 15. So my parents knew better. And they sent us to Madison, Florida, a small town in North Florida, where there were no Cubans. So we were treated like celebrities because we were the one and only Cubans. No problems. Everybody welcomed us. And um, so I had a great, uh, unlike most Cubans, I had the best experience ever coming from Cuba to the U.S. Well, you know, if you look at Florida now, which is now starting to go heavily Republican because the New York Republicans are fleeing uh, the communism up in New York State. But um, my husband, his ex-wife was Cuban, also, you know, a refugee. Um, So when they had the Mariela boat lift, they went down there to try to get her sister. But it was so bad that all the husband had to do was say, no, she's not leaving. And they were not able to bring her out. But that's the tyranny in which is communism, that the few can determine the fate of everyone else. You know, it's, 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 that's what people are looking for when you hear these kids saying socialism is good. Are you out of your friggin' mind? They have no idea what it is. It is happening here right now. Communism. We have communism in the USA today, right now, as we speak. People haven't felt it. Go ahead. No, they they haven't recognized it yet. But when you're told, oh no. you, you can't go on campus to to have free speech. If you want to have free speech, there's this little corner here that's gated off. You can stand there and say whatever you want, but you can't come through the rest of the campus and say whatever you want. That's tyranny. That's communism. And when you're told that, oh, no, you could only have this type of light bulb or this type of toilet, the government mandates what you have. That's not freedom. That's not freedom. That's tyranny. And we have allowed ourselves to slip into it. Uh, you can't put an ad up on Facebook if it's political. Oh, but if it's if it's socialist political, you can put it up. But if it's conservative political, no, 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 no. It, it's, it's hate speech. You can't do that because we deemed it. We have fallen in so far into government dictating our very life that you are right. We have slipped into it. Well, I have a very simple definition of communism, one that even a uh, a grammar school kid could understand. It's like this. You, your family have a business, and one day someone from the government comes and says, this business now belongs to the people, not to you. Get out. That simple. And there's nothing you can do. You can give them the keys and leave the country because otherwise they'll shoot you, throw you in jail, or whatever. You have no rights of any kind. It hasn't happened here yet, but the way things are going, of course it'll happen. It happened to many Cubans and Venezuelans, and you name it. Well, all we have to do is look at what happened with this pandemic. There were businesses in New York that tried to stay open, and the government turned around and locked them took the business away from them and then find them and make them pay additional money on top of losing their business, their entire livelihood, their life. We've already seen that here. Yeah. 
Well, talking about Venezuela, I'd like to say something. Uh, I used to say that Cubans were ignorant about communism, but Venezuelans were stupid because they should have learned from the example of Cuba. Well, that was before I learned about the Dominion voting machines. So maybe mm. the Venezuelans voted against Chavez and Maduro, but they were cheated by Dominion, same as it happened to Trump. So my apologies to the Venezuelan people. I was wrong. Well, you know, the funny thing is that the information about the Dominion machines came out before the election. We were talking about it, that, hey, wait a minute, this is what happened in Venezuela. Why are you going to use the same machines that were used in Venezuela that handed Maduro the election? But no, they knew they could steal the election the same way Maduro stole the election. And we're finding out now the truth behind it. But is it going to change anything that's happening now? I don't know. I'm hoping it does. I don't know. Well, and also think of how many other elections have been stolen in the U.S. of different senators and congresspeople, you know, even local elections. We don't know because we were not uh, refuting the quick results when the Democrats win. But if a Republican wins, then they challenge everything. But we don't challenge anything. Trump was the first and only one to really say something, but he got no backing from his fellow quote, Republicans. No, and, and yeah, it's a shame. Cause... Go ahead, Curtis. Yeah, I want to add that um, he didn't get any help from his um, BI or Justice Department. I mean, they had all these investigations that, that spent millions of dollars, and nobody, nobody was um, brought to justice, you know, to, to, to you know, answer for some of these things. Um, he had no backing, and it's a shame that our, our institutions failed us because somehow they they were part, either part of the establishment or they were somehow co-opted into becoming, you know, part of that, that, that scheme to um, get rid of this president. Yes, anything to get rid of Trump and to ruin the American economy that was doing so great. And it was. Well, now everyone's out there crying because their 401ks are tanking, prices are going up, gasoline is going up over $4 a gallon in certain areas. Now you're going to worry? You should have been worrying back in November when the votes were coming in all cockeyed. Yeah, November the 4th should have been the time to start this auditing and uh, and complaining. But no, they waited till the uh, Electoral College ratified, illegally ratified the uh, stolen election. It's uh, yeah. sickening that uh, Mike Pence uh, went along. Yeah, unfortunately. But then again, um, we have a couple of friends that know Mike Pence kind of and uh, kind of figured he was going to go that way, the way of a rhino. But, you know, you have someone like Liz Cheney. Uh and now you got Paul Ryan out there talking that, and they don't understand. That's not mainstream America. That is just the, the precious few rhinos that are trying to hold on to power. But that's not the average American, and they're pandering to a crowd that's you know disappearing. Hopefully. 
Uh, yes, and the demographics of the USA is changing drastically. Uh, in 1966, we had the uh, Immigration Reform Act allowed to bring in people from the third world who are not really the best immigrants that we need. So today, with millions of Americans without a job, why are we bringing in, bringing in any more immigrants from anywhere, whether from Cuba or Nicaragua or, or um, uh, um, Nigeria? It doesn't matter from where. We got to put Americans first. This is just plain Southern common sense. Absolutely. Now, it's a federal law that, you know, employer, if you're going to bring in an immigrant for, for a specific job, you have to first offer it to an American. And the American gets hired first before a, a visa immigrant. But no, our, our companies, Disney, GM, GE, you, you can go down a whole list of, of companies that will get these visa workers in when you have Americans qualified for the job. But why do they get the visa workers in? Because they can get them at a discount instead of paying the full U.S. working wage. We've got to clamp down on that, and we are not. Instead, we have this flood. They're not even, even attempting to arrest anyone flooding over the border now. I mean, even the smugglers are not even being touched today. This is, this is the well, I remember when I arrived in 1960, legal and illegal immigrants respected and even feared the INS, the Immigration and Naturalization Service. And they had to be self-sufficient, but now uh, we take care of them of their every need. And some of them come here not to assimilate and to impose their culture on us. What we need right now is uh, a moratorium on immigration and to bring back Operation Wetback. Are you familiar with that one? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And, and well, there's uh, a lot of criticism because of it, but... <laughs> It worked. Well, um, I read that uh, it was implemented by uh, Eisenhower in 54, and from one to three million illegal aliens were deported, uh, rounded up and deported just like that. Mm-hmm. There were no claims for political asylum or uh, going before a judge. Uh, Eisenhower simply enforced the law, and the world did not come to an end. No, we put Americans first. Well, he did it to open jobs for, re- for the returning veterans from the Korean War. So he put mm-hmm. Americans first. Plain common sense. At, at one point, if you were an immigrant, you had to have a sponsor. The sponsor has a background check. The sponsor has to make sure that you have a place to live, you have uh, a, a job, and you cannot get any government benefits for five years. And if anything happens, if you commit a crime, the sponsor is also held equally responsible. There was a point where there was personal responsibility. Instead now, you've got free Obama phones, free housing, free medical care, uh, free education, uh, you, you free this, free that. So you come over, you, you could be, live like a millionaire if you were back in whatever country you came from. But instead, no, hand out so it's a good Democratic vote. You want to keep on getting the free stuff? Vote Democrat. Well, I have some answers for that. Uh, First of all, if you 
we deport you, you come back, you got to be punished severely. Now, the criminal illegal aliens, those we should not send back. Why not? Well, because they come back anyway. So we should round them up and put them up in forced labor uh, concentration camps, working 12 to 16 hours a day, and what they produce should be given to their crime victims as compensation. And those that kill will be compensating the victim's family forever and ever. And in other ways, in other words, it is punishment for people breaking the laws and helping the victims of the illegal aliens. And we don't help the victims of illegal aliens. We help the aliens, the illegals, not the victims. I know, I know. I, I lost a friend. He was uh, the a- illegal alien had been deported three times by another friend of mine who was an ICE who was an ICE agent. He personally escorted the guy over the border three times. He came back to kill my friend, who happened to have been in the line of duty as a police officer in New York City. Bob Machadi died at the hands of the illegal alien deported three times, and they come right back like a bad penny. Keep on coming right on back. And so don't deport them. So don't deport them. Keep them working to compensate the victims. Period. And unfortunately, that's, you'll that's have the, the bleeding heart liberals that say, "Well, that's forced labor." No, they committed a crime. They were incarcerated, and while they're car- incarcerated, they're going to earn their keep because someone has to pay for their food and clothing and medical care. So if they want, <laughs> if they want those things, then they're going to have to work for their upkeep. But they don't are you familiar with the Are you familiar with the RICO Act? Yes. Okay. Well, we should yes. use that because the RICO Act says that you could seize the assets of anything you obtain illegally. So if you have dirty money and you buy a house, the government can take that house away from you. Well, let's apply it to illegal aliens. You have a Mexican or whatever nationality who has been in the country illegally for 20 years, and they have a house, a car, and maybe a business. Well, seize all of that from the illegal before you deport them. And also send back his uh, children, even if they were born here. Because common sense says that two illegals cannot make something legal, and you cannot give what you do not have. So let's send back anybody who wasn't born to an American citizen in the U.S. That's my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) And you're sticking to it. (laughs) Yes, and I never heard anybody mention using the RICO Act to fight uh, illegal immigration and to... uh, Make it fair for the uh, for the American people. I know time is running think... uh, fast, so I want to say a couple of things about uh, uh, the former Cuban president Batista, the one before Castro, and make a comparison that uh, I bet you never heard. Well, of course, okay. Batista was not George Washington, okay? But compared mm-hmm. to Castro, he was a saint. And even compared to our recent U.S. presidents, except Trump, of course. And, of course, there was political corruption in Cuba, crime, 
poverty, drugs, prostitution, gambling, uh, and everything else. So for those reasons, Batista had to be thrown out. But let me ask you, don't we have all of that today in the USA? We have political corruption, poverty, prostitution, human trafficking, including children, drugs and crime. I mean, we had everything that Batista had. We have it here. Now, but what is worse, uh, here we have anarchy, rioting and looting. Well, Batista did not allow any of that in Cuba. Also, we have big tech controlling uh, all the information and communication. And in addition, some of our biggest corporations donate millions of dollars to communist groups like Antifa and Black Lives Matter. Cuban companies did not do that. In addition, we have entertainers and athletes siding with the anti-American anarchists. Well, Cuban sports and entertainment people did not do that either. So really, comparing Cuba before Castro to the USA today, we're about the same. And um, this is something I bet you never heard. I'm going to compare the Cuban former president, Fulgencio Batista, and Trump. I say that Batista was vilified and lied about by the mainstream media, same as they did with Trump. Uh, Batista was pro-military, so is Trump. Batista was pro-business, so is Trump. Batista was anti-communist, so is Trump. Batista was a nationalist, so is Trump. About the only difference, Trump, thank God, had something. Trump had uh, Twitter and conservative talk radio. I wonder if Batista had had Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> no Twitter. Oh, 60 no years Twitter ago. <laughs> no. And uh, in, in, I want to close with some things here. My advice to Republicans, take the offensive or you're going to lose everything. If you don't fight, nothing will happen. Uh, we have now two parties, two new parties, the traitors and the patriots. And here is a billboard that should be all, all across the country. Trump won, Trump won, Biden cheated. Fix it. And our biggest <laughs> enemy the Congress. It's not Islam or China. It's the Congress, our biggest enemy. I call the Democrats the enemies within and the Republicans the accomplices within. And to end my, um, my comments, I'd like to talk about my ideal candidate. He or she okay. should cut taxes or implement the fair tax. Cut spending and cut immigration to accept only the very best people from the world. Cut the size of government. Cut welfare, except for the very, very sick and very, very old. Cut foreign aid and deport all illegals, including anchor babies. In other words, put Americans first. This is plain common sense. Absolutely, put Americans first. That's right, always. And stop appointing judges, attorneys and judges to the Supreme Court. Appoint somebody with a good education and plenty of plain common sense. Did you know that to <laughs> be a Supreme Court, Supreme Court justice, there's no requirement 
of education, experience, age, or anything. All you got to do is be friends with the president. Did you know that? <laughs> yes, I did. That I did. Okay, well, good then, you know a lot. And then my message to Trump and the White Hats, whatever you are planning, please hurry up, hurry up and do it, or there will be no country left for you to save. So I say, well, uh, God bless Trump, and um, Annie and CS, thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> it's all yours. Well, Go ahead. It, it, is, it has been a pleasure speaking with you, but you know, it's a little heartening. Uh, Trump is planning a rally real soon, and we know it's going to be in the Florida. So he's coming to a town near you soon. So I'm, I'm hoping it's in the Jacksonville area by you, just to piss them off because they wouldn't let him have it last time. <laughs> so. That's true. <laughs> the convention and all that. Well, yes. really, uh, Jacksonville is an okay town. Uh, we have a, a rhino for a mayor, but uh, uh, I don't know what to say, what else to say. Uh, we need to do something because uh, my patience my patience is running out. <laughs> the older we get, the less we can suffer fools gladly. <laughs> That's how I like to look at it. I have reached that point in my life. I do not suffer fools gladly. <laughs> and it sounds like you've done the same thing. Yes, and whatever I say, if they don't like it, so be it. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> I am retired. Well, if people want to know more about you, where can, where can they find you online? Well, I don't really have a good website. Um, I'm a sculptor and all that, but uh, that is on the side. Uh, I just do speaking here and there as people ask me, uh, different clubs and civic groups and all that. Uh, I am a very active Tea Party member in, in Jacksonville and in St. Augustine. I love St. Augustine. I've actually walked from the harbor all the way over to the winery and back again, which was kind of like stupid because it's a long walk. <laughs> well, Drew, yeah. it has been a pleasure, and we welcome you back anytime. Well, uh, again, thank you for inviting me, and uh, God bless you, and God bless Trump. When we pray for dinner, we say thank you for the food, et cetera, and please help Trump. <laughs> That's our daily <laughs> prayer. Good, uh, good. And let may, may it be heard. Derby, thank you very much, and God bless. Enjoy your weekend. All right. Thank you. Um, we've got, it looks like we got, uh, we got our next guest in, our final victim of the day. Welcome back, Zach Smith of Heritage Foundation. Good afternoon, Zach. How are you today? Good afternoon. I'm doing okay. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, we, we've been having a blast today, absolutely a blast. But uh, the show has gone so fast, I don't even know where it went today. Holy <laughs> moly. Oh, man, I, I, I was scribbling my notes late last night, so just bear with me as I shuffle my papers around. Um, you've got some excellent articles up on uh, the Heritage Foundation. And uh, one of the things is uh, I found this interesting with my law enforcement background um, about the caretaking exception in warrantless searches. And um, as I was reading the article that you wrote, I'm going, boy, were these guys really stupid. They really think they're going to get away with it. But 
Uh, Clarence Thomas did a really, really good article. Uh, I want you to explain to people what this article was about when we're talking about the caretaking exemption and applicable applicable to warrantless searches. Sure, happy to. Well, you know, we're coming down to the end of the Supreme Court's term, so we're starting to get a lot of decisions each week. Uh, They have more than 20 opinions left to hand out uh, before the end of June, so I suspect (laughs) there'll be a lot of news out of the Supreme Court over the next several weeks. Uh, But the case you're talking about was one called Coniglia v. Strom. And basically, there's a rule that in certain instances, uh, police officers can conduct warrantless searches. You know, ordinarily, you need a search warrant signed by a judge uh, before you can go into someone's home, before you can, you know, seize certain items uh, from someone or conduct a search. One of those exceptions is something called the community caretaking exception. This is a doctrine the court established many years ago, and it came about because because of a, a search of a vehicle. Uh, And basically, the court has said that, you know, when police officers, when they impound a vehicle, uh, when they're performing non-law enforcement functions, in certain instances, uh, they can conduct a search uh, according to this community caretaking exception uh, to the warrant requirement. So what happened in this case, a Rhode Island couple, they're having a fight, uh, and the husband uh, put a gun on the table and told his wife, look, this is horrible. Just shoot me now and get it over with. Well, the wife was upset. She left the house, uh, and she tried calling her husband later, but she couldn't get a hold of him. So she asked the police officers to go back with her to the house and conduct a wellness check. So they did that, and when they got there, they found the husband, and they wanted him to go in for a, you know, a psychiatric evaluation, be sure he was okay, wasn't going to hurt himself or others. And he said he would, but only on the condition that they wouldn't try to seize any of his firearms. So they said, yeah, that's fine. They agreed, uh, and the husband went off to get evaluated. Well, it turns out the police lied to him. They went into his home. They seized his firearms, and they wouldn't give them back. So he filed a lawsuit. And what the police department said is they thought they were justified in entering the man's home and seizing his firearms under this so-called community caretaking exception. And the district court agreed, the First Circuit Court of Appeals agreed with them, but when it got up to the Supreme Court, uh, as you mentioned, Annie, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas wrote for the unanimous court and said, no, 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 this community caretaking function uh, exception does not extend to someone's home. Police still need either a warrant are exigent circumstances, you know, someone crying for help, uh, hearing drugs being flushed down the toilet, those types of things before they can enter without a warrant. Uh, Now, there were several concurrences, other justices writing for themselves that basically said, look, there are a lot of questions that remain unresolved by this opinion. You know, how does this relate to red flag laws? How does this relate to other types of searches? How does this relate when police officers believe someone who is sick has like fallen and they can't get up or they need other medical assistance? But the court said all of those are for another day. But today, uh, the community caretaking exception doesn't apply. The default has to be that police officers are warrant uh, to enter and search your home. You know, the, I, when I was reading the circumstances, I'm saying, boy, if they had done this in New York City, all those cops would have been sitting behind bars before they even finished the search. Um, having been there, done that, you know, when we did it, when we arrested someone, 
in their motor vehicle. You know, you then impound the vehicle to safeguard it. And then you do an inventory right. to safeguard anything and to also legally protect yourself, saying this is the actual inventory sheet of everything we've recovered from the vehicle and everything stays intact. So if you come across a firearm in that inventory, then you have the right to confiscate it and then inventory it for either safekeeping or confiscation. But in this instance, I did not understand that when he exited the house, those officers did not go to court and request a search warrant knowing that this person may be a danger to himself or someone else, swear out a warrant, request to retrieve the weapons and seize them subject to the outcome of his examination, whether or not the doctor says it's okay, go back. I did not understand why they didn't do that. So to me, it was a no-brainer. Right. No, that's exactly right. You know, I know you worked in law enforcement. I was formerly a, a prosecutor. So, you know, these search and seizure issues come up, you know, every day uh, in, in those lines of work. And I think one of the important things that Justice Thomas and the court as a whole were really trying to say is that, you know, yes, police officers perform community caretaking functions, uh, but the home is different. It's special. It's different than the context of an automobile where, like you were saying, you know, it can be stolen. Someone can get in and drive away, you know, with the automobile, with the other evidence, uh, with a firearm if it's in the vehicle. Uh, But the home is different. And so in order uh, for police officers to enter someone's home without a warrant, uh, they're not going to extend these other exceptions that were created for other circumstances uh, to someone's home. And so I think that's an important uh, principle to realize and to understand and to really keep an eye on as the court continues uh, to deal with many of these search and seizure issues that come before it. Yeah, it, to me, it was a no-brainer. So the second I was reading the storyline and I'm saying, how dumb can you really be? But sometimes you have some departments that will try to push the envelope, which is what this obviously was. Uh, you know, as you said, a, a motor vehicle can be moved. The house cannot be. And so it, it stands right. to reason that you would need the warrant. You know, where the vehicle can disappear and you no longer safeguard the property of the person that you've taken into custody, or even if you were transporting them to the hospital for an aided case, you know, you still need to safeguard the vehicle. Otherwise, your department and you could be held, you know, civilly liable for the disappearance of their property. And just to me, it was just a a no-brainer. So I was just wondering why it had to go this far, but you have the liberal courts it just will let anything ride. But you know, well, there was another there one. Were... Sure. Oh, go ahead, please. No, I was just going to say there are two other kind of interesting aspects about this. And it goes to your point, Annie, about it being a no-brainer. You know, Supreme Court opinions are typically uh, voluminous. <laughs> They're very lengthy. <laughs> this one was not. It was a very short opinion, about four pages, written by Justice Thomas for a unanimous court, 9-0, which is, you know, uh, increasingly rare these days. And so obviously Mm -hmm. this conduct was something that troubled all of the justices. Uh, They didn't spill a lot of ink, you know, uh, reaching their decision. And so I think it does, you know, certainly what you were saying, certainly 
uh, troubled all of the justices uh, by what they saw. Absolutely. Now, there was another one that you you wrote about um, dealing with DNA. And I found that one very interesting. There were some things I wasn't aware of uh, with a third party compared to, you know, uh, the first party. Um, This dealt with a gentleman, William Earl Talbot II. Tell us what that one was about. Sure. Well, you know, I'm sure all of us have seen commercials on TV uh, for these commercial DNA sites, you know, 23andMe, you know, you know, Ancestry.com, I think, has one now. But basically, you know, where you, you provide some type of DNA, whether it's, you know, a, a swab in your mouth or a hair sample or something else to these companies, and they can run a DNA test on you and tell you a lot of information about your heritage uh, and potentially, you know, match you with other people in their databases. Well, there are also other uh, third-party websites that basically allow you to upload your results uh, into uh, their system and make them publicly available and try to make matches uh, for potential, you know, lost relatives, uh, potential, you know, family members, uh, so you can find out more information, you know, about yourself, about your family members, that sort of thing. Well, police officers uh, have realized this information is out there, and they've been increasingly using it, uploading uh, uh, information to these third-party websites uh, from cold case uh, files, from murders, rapes, uh, other you know, very horrific crimes, trying to find DNA matches. And so what often happens in these cases uh, is that they'll get a DNA hit to a family member. And then they can work their way backwards and figure out who who it was that likely committed these horrific crimes. And so the person you mentioned uh, is more commonly known as the Golden State Killer. You know, uh, uh, really went on a crime spree uh, for many years in California, uh, committed a number of horrendous rapes and murders, and really terrorized uh, the community in California for many, many years. And by using this method, uh, police officers were able to discover uh, who he was and ultimately uh, obtained a conviction against him. And he is now you know, going to serve the rest of his life uh, in prison because of that. And so one of the questions that's emerged is whether or not police officers uh, need a warrant to you know, upload information into these third-party websites and obtain information from them. And so my colleague, Cully Simpson, and I wrote on this issue uh, and it's our view that because this information is publicly available, it's being freely uploaded by individuals. It's not something the government's compelling them to do. It's not a database that's maintained by the government. It's you know, run by private entities. Uh, that search warrant would not be needed uh, for police officers to conduct these types of informa- uh, these types of searches. And in fact. Uh, because police officers are pursuing these leads, uh, many cold cases are, are being solved through them, which I think is an encouraging development. Well, what I found interesting is is that with uh, one, two, three, and ancestry, you have. If I were to do set my DNA, and I have an implicit contract between that company and me, so that data cannot be. Uh, accessed unless it has a search warrant. Whereas this other one, this GED, um, you are freely taking that information you're getting from Ancestry or 123 or whatever you're you're getting it from, putting it out there as if you're putting it on the public bulletin board, basically is what you're doing, so where anyone can access it. In his case, 
it was a distant relative that uploaded her information, which they used right. to backtrack to him. So it was not his information per se, but it ended up leading them to him through publicly available information. Whereas if it was with Ancestry, yes, you would need a, a warrant, but with this third-party platform that is an open public platform, anyone can access it. So if anyone can access the police can access it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And look, obviously, you know, we want to be cognizant of, of individuals' privacy. Uh, but as you mentioned, you know, many of these sites that directly provide the genetics testing uh, maintain very strict privacy protocols, uh, uh, you know, guarantee their clients that they will not release this information to third parties uh, without written consent or a court order to do so. And so, you know, that is a very different situation uh, then, like you mentioned, GED Match, and there are some others out there uh, that essentially function as a forum uh, for people to post their DNA and see what matches are out there. Uh, and in many ways, you know, it's no different than police officers, you know, doing good old shoe leather police work, you know, uh, staking out someone uh, to see, you know, where they're going and, you know, who's coming to see them and that sort of thing, which, you know, obviously officers would not need a warrant to do that. Well, now, in the same article, you went and talked about the Carpenter Rule, which was Carpenter v. Uh, United States back in 2018. And I found this interesting because there's always a question about cell phone data, uh, accessing the data, right. accessing the phone locations, tracking it. And it's always been a gray area. But on this one, the Supreme Court made a decision which I found interesting. What was the situation? Yeah, and it, it was a very contentious issue. Basically, involved uh, something called cell site location information. So, whenever you travel anywhere with your cell phone in your pocket, it's constantly pinging different cell towers. That's how you get, you know, the data you receive. You know, so you can review emails or you know, Twitter or Facebook or whatever <laughs> uh, data you're viewing on your phone, or you know, when you're having a phone conversation that information is being routed through a cell tower, a cell site location. And so basically, you know, if uh, police officers obtain that cell site location information, they can track a person or that person's cell phone, which is presumably with the person, uh, with a pretty high degree of accuracy. And so what the Carpenter case was dealing with was whether or not uh, police officers would need to get a warrant to obtain that cell site location information. And in that case, the uh, Supreme Court said that officers would need to get a warrant uh, due to the amount of information, the precise uh, ability to track someone for, you know, essentially 24 hours a day with a very, with a very high degree of precision. Uh, and so the police officers would need a warrant in that situation. Uh, but again, as you mentioned earlier, Annie, I think that's a different situation than these publicly available third-party websites where people are willingly uploading their DNA uh, for public consumption and public review. Uh, and so, in, again, in that case, my view is that police officers would not need a warrant uh, to search those publicly available third-party DNA databases. Now, I'm going to throw a little monkey wrench in here because now everyone has Google on their smart device. And Google puts 
I track her on your phone. Uh, guys, If you unless you turn off your GPS locator, Google will know exactly where you are. And they also have the app where you can track your spouse, your children, or someone else's phone. What would prohibit a law enforcement officer from using that Google app feature to track an individual? Well, you know, so as a practical matter, you know, this is not something that Google or Facebook or any of the other tech companies that do this uh, readily uh, turn over. They typically require some type of court process before you can access uh, that information. And to err on the side of caution, you know, law enforcement officers, in my experience, typically get a warrant for that information. That way they be sure, you know, they're following the law and any evidence they obtain as a result won't be thrown out in court. But at least as the Supreme Court has teed it up right now, you know, whether or not something requires a warrant uh, typically revolves around whether you have an expectation of privacy. And so if you have an expectation of privacy somewhere or in some device, then typically uh, police officers, law enforcement officers will need a warrant to gain access to it. If you do not have an expectation of privacy, typically a warrant is not needed. And so, you know, that's where we get into that debate. Do you have an expectation of privacy? Do you not? Is it objective? Is it subjective? And, and it, you know, it can really be quite difficult to make these determinations uh, sometimes. But again, in the, the case of this GED match, third-party DNA website, you know, I don't know how anyone could argue that you would have an expectation of privacy when you are voluntarily uploading your DNA data uh, for the world to see, and in fact, for the very purpose of being reviewed to see if there are any potential matches out there uh, to your DNA. Well, you know, I, I kind of, when I was reading it, what came to mind was the HIPAA Act. In, in a way, you're evoking the HIPAA Act with Ancestry or 123, and you are then turning around and signing that waiver form that HIPAA requires if you want that information put out somewhere else. So you either adhere to the HIPAA Act or you sign the waiver and give it away. So, you know, it may, to me, it, it, I was looking at it in all different ways. And since I invoked the HIPAA Act before my county council, I'm very familiar with it lately. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I, got, I got the mask mandate removed. Yes, I did. Um, anyway, mm-hmm. we only have a few minutes left. And there's one thing that's coming up that, you know, everyone is is watching. And this is something that may overturn or rein in, rein in, rein in Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood. Uh, this is Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. What is the story about that? What's going on there? Yeah, this is a very high-profile case. It has a lot of uh, folks, you know, both pro-life and pro-choice individuals, very excited, very nervous. Essentially, uh, Mississippi uh, imposed a law to protect the, you know, the health of the unborn child, the health of the mother, uh, and uh, you know, a question is whether it could be sustained or not. Lower courts struck it down. Uh, So the state of Mississippi uh, went to the Supreme Court, asked them to review it. And, you know, the Supreme Court doesn't have to take a case, most cases, it doesn't have to take 
And so the parties come, they file something called a writ of certiorari, and they ask the court to take up the case and decide the issues. And typically, the justices will meet in conference. Uh, a case may be ca carried over for one or two conferences uh, before the justices either say yes, we'll review it, or no, we want. This case, the Dobbs case, was carried over for many, many conferences. And so it led to a lot of questions. You know, why were the justices having such a difficult time deciding whether or not to take this case? Uh, only four justices need to agree in order to hear a case. And so many people thought, well, the court's going to decide not to hear the case, uh, but maybe somebody's writing a dissent from the denial of certiorari. Maybe somebody's writing concurrence. Uh, we just didn't know. It's a very unusual situation. And so the fact that the court has decided to take it up uh, does give hope that they will, you know, in an ideal world, overturn Roe v. Wade or at least uh, scale back its reach somewhat uh, of Roe and of Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Uh, but we just don't know. Um, but, you know, it certainly does look like there is a conservative majority on the court now uh, with the addition of Justice Barrett. And so, again, it's one everyone is going to be watching very, very closely uh, next term. Now, I'm wondering, because here in South Carolina, McMaster's just recently signed in the heartbeat bill. Uh, Georgia got excoriated for signing the heartbeat bill. And you see conservative governors throughout the nation going forward with these heartbeat bills. What effect would that have on this case? Would it affect it at all? Well, it, those bills wouldn't have an effect on this case, but this case could certainly have an effect on those bills, whether or not they would be struck down if they're challenged. Uh, and so, again, this is a very important case uh, for the pro-life movement, uh, you know, for the pro-choice advocates, too. Uh, because it really could uh, fundamentally shift the landscape of, uh, you know, abortion procedures in America. Uh, but, you know, many pro-life advocates are hopeful uh, that with, again, with a conservative majority on the court, uh, that the court will really rein in what was, in my view, uh, a very bad, uh, very uh, – a decision very untethered from the text of the Constitution in both Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Well, we've only got like a few minutes left. I wish I had more time because there's so much. I, I have notes all over the place for, just for you. But, <laughs> but you know, we hear that legislation going through Congress to make Washington, D.C. a state. But finally, a politician actually listened and actually did his homework. And you've got a Democrat saying, uh, no, you need a constitutional amendment. Joe Manchin from West Virginia said, no, right. you guys are wrong. You can't. Someone finally got it right. So where, where do we stand and what's going on? Yeah, no, you, exactly as a matter of fact, right. you, you testified know, I, on this one. I did. I had a chance to testify before the House Oversight Committee on this issue. Uh, unfortunately, you know, the Democratic members of the committee didn't listen <laughs> to what I had to say. They passed the bill. Uh, but it looks like Joe Manchin did listen, which was encouraging. And he cited many of the same things that I cited in my testimony, noted that, you know, historically, both uh, Republican and Democratic Justice Departments recognized that a constitutional amendment was needed in order for D.C. to become a state, and more to the point that there are practical problems with the district becoming a state. And so at least for now, Joe Manchin is signaling he will not support D.C. statehood. 
And what that means uh, is that if Joe Manchin stays firm, which I'm hopeful he will, uh, that the Democrats in the Senate do not have the votes uh, with or without filibuster uh, reform uh, to pass D.C. statehood legislation. Uh, so at least for now, you know, it certainly appears to face a very, very uh, uphill battle in the Senate, which is a good thing. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, I don't think this is the last time we've heard of the D.C. statehood issue. Uh, it certainly seems to be politically motivated and desire to gain two new Democratic senators. Um, so I, I suspect it will be back in future Congresses as well. I'm just waiting for them to throw Puerto Rico back into the mess or the Virgin Islands. Because if they don't get D.C., I think that's what they're going to aim for next. Well, I will say the constitutional issues around D.C. Uh, are different uh, than the ones related to Puerto Rico or the Virgin Islands because the district is a unique entity. Uh, it's explicitly provided for in another section of the Constitution. And so, you know, I think there's certainly, uh, you know, a robust policy debate to be had around whether, you know, Puerto Rico should be a state, whether the Virgin Islands should be a state. Uh, but there are really, really severe constitutional reasons uh, why the District of Columbia cannot become a state without a constitutional amendment. Well, Zach, it has been a pleasure. I wish we had more time. And you know – we love you guys over there at Heritage Foundation, where they can find you and all the other guys that Tom sends us every single week. And tell Tom I love him. I, I, I mean, if I was single, I'll, I'd go after him. <laughs> well, I will. I, I know Tom appreciates the chance to get us on, and I appreciate you having me on today as well, Annie. Well, you know, we always have fun. So uh, enjoy your Memorial Day weekend, and God bless you guys all for the hard work you all do over there. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great weekend as well. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. All right. Check out Zach Smith over at Heritage.org. Curtis, that's all we got for today. We're going to be back here next Friday. We've got my friend Colin Heaton. Uh, he's got a new book out. Also, one of his books is being made into a movie. And we also have Ari Hoffman joining us also uh, on Friday. So we got ourselves just about a full plate next week. Yeah. Today went by so fast. I mean, oh, well, uh, like we were only on for an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to leave everyone with uh, the song Save America by Gary Pecorella. So until then, I say good night, God bless, and see you next week.
Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.